Exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people who make it, and occasionally democracy itself. <laughs> I'm Camille Foster. I am the HNIC, which stands for, if you don't know what that stands for, it only uh-huh. proves how racist you are. I am yeah. delighted to be here. I do various things at a place called Freethink. I do all kinds of things all over the place because I'm very Jamaican. You know. It's January 6th, and, and we've got so many things to talk about. And by we, I am referring to Matt Welch, editor at Large of Reason magazine, who apparently takes no responsibilities for the things published in that 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 publication, if we can That's call correct. it that. Michael Moynihan, That's Vice correct. News, also takes no responsibility for the no, things published by no, his I, organization. So I do not. But at least you agree with it. All of it. Yeah, um, that's true. Um, <laughs> that is you know, true. I mean, it's especially about the mediocrity of white men. I, so, I mean, I am the living example of this. I, I will yes, say this, are. though. Um, the trauma that I have suffered today and having yes. to read the accounts of people who were at a news event it's yeah. been pretty hard on me. And I just yeah. want to say, but before we get into this, by the way, I just wanted to say this, but I was coming over. I was at a stoplight. I drove into the city because I'm lazy. And the MTA is full of stabbing hobos. So I uh, was looking at my phone at a stoplight. That's racist, by the way. Yeah. You're, well, just, you're not allowed to say that. Well, hobos are like white guys yeah. on boxcars. Right? Exactly. <laughs> so I'm reading, I'm reading my phone and there's... Um, a piece, and I don't remember, I can't remember, it was like fucking nine pieces of this. And it said, uh, Biden speaks on the first anniversary of January 6th. And I was like, wait a second, are there going to be more of these? Is this, <laughs> this is for, like tomorrow, this next is it. second yeah, anniversary? This is right now. Yeah, I and mean, if you're not excited about I not celebrating this, so I was like, I get it. First time around, that's fine. Yeah. On, Fox, gotta- on Fox on Monday night, Greg Goodfeld referred to it as um, media Christmas, I think is what he called it. Matt Rosenberg, our guest. That we <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is Matt Rosenberg, the New York Times. He is our guest today. Yeah. Give him some applause. Yes. Um, he, he, Who also agrees with everything that the New York Times publishes. Everything. Absolutely. Especially everything. Absolutely. It's editorial. He's the one who yeah. ran very wise out of New York Times. <laughs> oh, Congratulations. Yeah. He yeah. sent he sent the axe emojis. Um, <laughs> but this is the thing. Let me say this. Let me say this. I I appreciate you joining us, Matt, not you, Welch. And I will will give the standard disclaimer that we give all the time. We we all have relationships with particular media publications. And as a result of that, it is not the case that we want to put people in a weird position. (laughs) We are a media criticism podcast. We have things to say about everyone and various things that we both love and hate about many publications, but we're not going to try to put you in a, in a compromised position here today. Unless you know that. it's funny. Unless it's care. funny, you're fucked. <laughs> <And> you're <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about, uh, I was going to, you know, anyways, uh, thank you gentlemen. It's, it's good to see everybody today. I am excited. And, you know, we talked a lot about January 6th, but also it's my mama's birthday today. And happy birthday, Mama! Happy birthday! I just want to say, you know, let's let's focus on the good. There are so many things that we could talk about. Um, I did uh, author a haiku for my mother, um, oh. which I did. In fact, I posted to 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 face not Facebook to Twitter earlier today, and I, I just want to share it with you all yeah, um, right. now. The other thing is important. 
January 6th, things will never be the same. Happy birthday, mom. <laughs> that's good. I that's pretty, you know, that's, I think that's pretty good. I can't send a link of this to my mother. She's like, well, my birthday. You know, yeah. like, yeah. Was she born on a day of terrorism? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. She was born on August 6, 1945. <laughs> her, her, her and my father got married on December 7th. So, you know. Oh, really? Wow. 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 The first wow. Pearl Harbor. Yeah. Uh, true story. My, <laughs> my older brother and older sister, respectively, were born on August 6th and August 9th. Is that right? Yeah. Fat man and little boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That is amazing. Is that a true story? That's, it is. You know it that is. I moved, I've told the story that I moved to New York on September 10th, 2001, and I moved back the day that bin Laden was killed. So I was nicely. Wow. So if you have a terror uh, incident in your city and you want justice to be done, just pay for my moving expenses. Mm-hmm. And the person, the Zarnayev brothers are, are looking to die when I go back to Boston. So. <laughs> So, Matt, you were at this January 6th last year's uh, conflagration. It was a trauma event for you. What what happened? Um, You know, I'd gone out the day before, actually. Um, I was um, doing a story on Michael Flynn, who I've known for many, many years. I don't think we've actually spoken since 2016, but I go back to Afghanistan with him. And we're doing a story, you know, he'd been pardoned. He's kind of getting back into public life. So I'd gone down to the rally they were having on, on January 5th in Freedom Plaza. And you get mm-hmm. there and look, it was everything you've read about it. It's bellicose. The crowd is, is really fired up. You know, people are saying, you know, talking about war and they need to stop this, stop the steal, everything you'd expect. And yeah. I remember that evening, darkness kind of fell and out of nowhere, kind of towards the back of the plaza, a few dozen guys in tactical vests and helmets, three percenter logos, a few proud boy types. Kind of just materialized. So I'm like, well, I'm going to go interview him. That's what I'm, what I'm here to do. So I go start mm-hmm. chatting with him. Most of them just wanted nothing to do with me, but a few of them were talking to me. And one guy showed me his ear where he's like, he's got this, all these stitches around his ear because his ear had pretty much been ripped off fighting with some Antifa idiot, um, in December at an earlier route, Trump rally in Washington. And they're all talking about how, you know, we're here to protect this. You know, the Antifa guys are going to try and screw this up. We're going to fight with them. That's what we're doing here. And then one of his friends with a club told me we know what to do with people like you. So I left. Um, oh, yeah. He's like, all right, well, that's my cue. Yeah. Um, but, you know, did, I did you ask him to clarify what he meant by people like you? Does he just mean the people who control the media? Which one is it? It occurred to me, I thought, you know, I'm not going to specify here. I'm just going to clarify, please. The pen is mightier than the club, but not face to face. And so, oh my gosh. So I think went I went down to the rally the next morning, kind of mm-hmm. thinking, all right, th- this is there's potential here. There's potential for something to go on. Right. Um, so we're we're at January 6th. Now, now. We're this, January 6th. this rally, this rally is what? This is the third Stop yes. the Steal rally to take place in DC. Exactly. Yeah. There was November, right. December. And look, after the November one, after the December one, that night there ended up being big street fights between the Antifa crowd and That's the kind right. of Trump militia crowd, Proud Boy crowd. Right. Right. It was, there was a fair amount of that yeah. kind of stuff happening between the, the yeah. demonstrators and counter demonstrators getting into to yeah. conflict. And it was really Which was physical. also true in, in mm-hmm. May 2020, right? During yeah. the uh, George Floyd stuff in D.C. Yeah. Yep. There were huge like Antifa, you know, like uh, going after the White House back then. Yeah. 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 I mean, was- after the RNC convention as well. It was just it, it, right. it was a constant mess. It is easy to forget just how typical an ordinary political violence became 
during 2020. And to that point, Matt, uh, you, when you're going down there as a New York Times reporter and, you know, you have a piece in the, uh, the paper today, it's a triple byline piece. I mean, you're communicating with all of your uh, fellow journalists. Is anyone expecting that today, because of the certification of the election, this is January 6th uh, of last year, that it's going to be something special today? Did you have some kind of previous <laughs> intel that this was going to like they're going to charge towards the White House? Yeah. Well, the truth is we knew, we just wanted it to happen because it would be a good Yeah, well, I know, I know. Because you were behind it. I think we had a pretty good idea that that's that there was potential. Um, yeah. You know, earlier protests, we'd had, I think some other reporters cover it. I think for this one, there was a sense like, look, this could be a rough crowd. Let's get some people who are veterans, who are experienced. You know, there's myself, another colleague. My colleague Sabrina Tabernese, who's who also yeah. covered wars overseas like I did. A guy named Adam Goldman, who's who's been around the block a few times, and my colleague Zolan, who's great. And yeah. um, and I, I think there was a sense of like, you know, we, we need to be aware of what could go on. Mm-hmm. And we were in touch mm-hmm. with security people, but I, I I don't think until what was it, 131 or 132, whenever they got on, like, I don't think any of us believed that was gonna happen until it was happening. It's like, how do you yeah. kind of plan for the, you know. Everything's possible, but it's not probable until it happens. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'd gone down there that day. I guess I called it like my uh, my rally goer chic of like an old pair of Carhartts and a dirty old blanket <laughs> and a big pair of boots. I'm like, look, if I'm going to fit in as best I can, you know. Um, mm-hmm. There's always there's always a little bit of uh, of art and how you get dressed before yeah. something like that, like what you wear to a demonstration. I remember like being in Hong Kong and having the same sort of considerations. But for me, like sartorial excellence can never be compromised. Yeah, you know, I had on you know my Parisian yeah. denim. Um, Officine General is one of my favorite yeah. favorite brands, and I had yeah. a great flannel from there. If if anyone could ever see the footage from that, yeah. you would get to see it. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. If, if you ever released any editorial content related yeah. to that trip, <laughs> yeah. people might be able to see. I mean, I even I even purchased these really fashionable glasses so that I wouldn't have to wear like goggles because of the tear uh, gas. And they're like, really "Well, Camille, it's still going to get you." Very quick. And I was like, uh, you know, whatever. I'm sorry, Matt. Please go ahead. You were saying your day. I left my agency yeah. denim at home that day. I just yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. The raw denim yeah. was not what I needed to be wearing at the protest. I knew, I knew you knew what was up, Matt. I prefer St. <laughs> Laurent. I prefer St. Laurent to ABC. Oh, yeah. As Kanye says, ABC is a bit, so it's a bit more gap. Yeah. It is, it's the Parisian gap. Well, like, I, I, I guess you've got an hour so it just fits better, maybe. So, you know. We go down there and like, look, it's a mix of people. There are a lot of people who are just there to see a Trump rally. You know, I yeah. mean, these are people you would run into in, in many cities, many towns in America. Um, then there are the guys who, who clearly are looking to mix it up. You can tell, you know, one of them I'm talking to and he's like, you know, if we got to stop this deal. I'm like, well, what are you going to do if they're, they're certifying what's going to happen? And he's, you know, kind of cracks a smile. He's like, well, I can't say anything more, sir, without incriminating myself. You know, I mean, there were guys who clearly, had some things in mind, but you know, I don't think it didn't feel like there was any kind of master plan. There wasn't, you know, this was a, mm-hmm. a, a huge crowd of a few thousand people, probably five, 10,000. I'm terrible doing crowd estimates. Mm-hmm. Um, I know whenever I talk to, to people who were there, who are really big believers, they get really mad at me. And they're like, it was 4 million people. Yeah. <laughs> like, like there are only half a million people in DC, sir. Um, <laughs> supporters, I was like, how many people are at the inauguration? Like, yeah. I, I know you don't. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, you know, it's hard to hear Trump. You know, people are spread out. And and I was in the kind of middle of the crowd, kind of halfway between the ellipse and the Washington Monument. 
So as he's wrapping up and people start moving down, I just sort of kind of going with them, you know? And I think I had colleagues who were closer to the front. And so they got there as guys were going into the Capitol. And I know at least one of my colleagues kind of went in with them, you know, and just see what's going on here. Um, I had another colleague who like was literally near the front and a guy had a heart attack and died right next to him. Um, and by the time I got there, it was already a, like just a mob scene on the Capitol, you know, and I, I'd seen from WhatsApp messages from colleagues, like, you know, people are going to the Capitol, but it was total chaos. And it was very hard to make sense of what was going on. Um, and then, you know, I think because I was in the middle, also by the time I got up to the building is when the police started kind of backfilling in. You started having people fighting on the west steps with the police just about the time that kind of stuff was starting. And, you know, from there, it just kind of unfolded. When you have a watched video afterwards and also uh, to the extent that you've paid attention to the select committee's work on it, what have you – what's been eye-opening to you about what you've learned that you couldn't see or detect uh, in real time on that day? I think was, you know, there are scenes from all around the building where you kind of see just people climbing over things and you see the kind of scale of it. And, and you see that, you know, you've got a few hundred people engaged in, 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 in some serious violence, but you also have a couple thousand just kind of hanging out and you can get a sense of the people who are hanging out, but getting a sense of, of, of what was going on the day was really hard because, you know, one minute you're talking to, some guy who is, is shouting about QAnon stuff and you get a, a face full of tear gas with him. And then you walk 40 feet away and you're talking to a bunch of school teachers who come up from North Carolina to kind of see what's happening um, and go to a Trump rally. And so it was very hard to get a sense of, of just how big a crowd it was and whatever it was kind of up to, you know, um, and where everything's going. And you had no idea what was going on inside. So um, if I can ramble on for another second here. Yeah, there's a video I took that day. It's, it's like my most viral video hit ever of this guy from Arkansas, big old Barnett. And he, he was kind of showed up just outside. I just got in like some tear gas and pulled back a little bit. This guy walks up. He's got his shirt open, his gray hair. And he starts talking to me. It turns out he'd just been in Nancy Pelosi's office. And he's got, yeah, this, yeah, 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 he's got this letter and he's showing me this letter. He saw from her Nancy he called her a bitch or something in writing or I don't know. And he's telling me this whole story. I'm like, you mind if I put this on video, sir? He's like, yeah, no problem. You're with the news. Oh, God. I'm like, all right. I'm like, here we go. Um, <clears throat> I had no idea until hours later that there was a picture of him in Nancy Pelosi's office, that he was like a person. You know, mm-hmm. I just kind of ran into this dude outside and he just started telling me about what he'd done. So this is interesting. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and that's a kind of, you get a snapshot. You just don't know what's going on. You, you don't. It's that fog of war issue, you know? But it's also kind of indicative of how, you know, there's a couple of ways of people, the way that people look at this. And I don't think in any way it underplays the seriousness of it when you kind of point out, or I often say to people, like, do you really think that it is a coup in the sense when people compare it to, you know, the failed beer hall putsch of 1923 or something, or something that, or even 1933, which somebody compared it in a tweet to me today, is that when guys come out, they're like tourists. They're like, I got into your office. Like, you're a journalist. Look at, look at it. It's like, they're just <laughs> morons. They're just like, yeah. you know, psychopathic, 
morons who believe in conspiracy theories and have been rooked by this, you know, psycho president showed up to do his bidding, all of which is bad, all of which should be punished and punishable. But, you know, when it gets into the kind of media ecosystem, when there's a lesson to be learned and mm-hmm. everyone's trying to teach lessons about the fragile democracy, et cetera, et cetera. You know, my takeaway has always been that it showed how robust our democracy was that day, actually. And, and afterwards, it showed the same thing. But, you know, I mean, when people have this kind of grand narrative of insurrectionists, a coup, if you don't know a ton about it, you get the sense, and that's why I asked you that first question, you get the sense that there's some organization to it. Or these people may not might not be effective, but they're very serious people. And from what I've seen, none of them seem particularly serious in any way that they had a plan, that they, it was just theater. All the theater that I've seen at a million Trump rallies, but, but violence, a violent version. That's absolutely right. I think I'm trying to find my phone here because I actually have something. Pull this up here. And, and- and while you're looking for that, I mean, just it, a couple of things that you said to me, said there, Moynihan, I think are worth like pulling out and, and unpacking a little bit. I mean, you, you, at the end there, you just refer to it as violent. And yeah. I'm interested, Matt, in you also talking about what it felt like to be there that day. Um, because in the pregame, as we were talking a little bit, we mentioned this, uh, piece in the Washington Post. Uh, the headline was, you know, the January 6th mob surged at me. The trauma rushed in. Um, and it's, you know, about journalists who are feeling and experiencing trauma having been there. You, you describe the atmosphere and the energy and this, this environment that's kind of touristy in certain moments and in certain places and in other places is intensely violent. I'm, I'm curious to know how you felt and whether or not you felt or feel somewhat traumatized having experienced it and how you square it with, you know, these depictions that Moynihan was just talking about of, the the events of January 6th as, you know, uh, the dispatch tells me I need to to refer to it as domestic terrorism and um, other other people suggest other things. I keep hearing coup, insurgency, all sorts of not insurgency, um, but insurrection. Like, what is it? So let me let's go back to the terrorism thing. I actually want to come back to that. But before I throw that, I, I should preface this all by saying I probably have a different risk tolerance than a lot of other people. I used to Afghanistan. I used to come to the war in Iraq. I used to run around uh, in Africa. Um, yeah. So I'm sorry, I, you I, said cocaine in Africa. What were we doing there? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, you did mention that you spent a year in Jamaica. I was going to talk about Jamaica. that too. Um, By the way, yeah. more horrifying than anything in Afghanistan. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, so I think, um, I, I think if, if I'm being fully honest about this, like I, I had a grand time covering that. It was interesting. Oh it was God. exciting. It wasn't great to watch. You weren't like, oh, wow, this is fun. Like, you know, this is bad, but it was mm-hmm. fascinating. You know, it's, 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 yeah, you're it's why I got yeah. into this game, you know? Yeah, like, exactly. I, I think, you know, I think especially for, I have some colleagues who were in the building. I think if mm-hmm. you're in the building hiding, it's probably scarier because you're For all sure. you know is that something mm-hmm. bad going on outside. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I'm outside with these guys. I can see like there there are some really violent people there, but there are a lot of morons and some of the most yeah. dumb ones are the most violent ones. And you they can be avoided. You know, at one point some guy came up to me like, You with the media? And I had my yeah, in my pocket, and I was like, no, F those reporters, and kind of went the other direction. <laughs> <laughs> I did the math. I mean, I don't want to get punched in the face. Right here, let's you know. and choose, and then start running. <laughs> That's what I usually do. <laughs> so it's like, look, I can either do my job or I can get laid out. So I'm going yeah. yeah. you know, to tell them you know, what I think. No, it's, it's, it's funny how much of this boils down to, and, and I think you actually had a column that just ran on this, which I'm sure you, you can unpack a little bit for us, but – 
you know, the binary. Yeah. Um, when folks talk about the, the sort of summer of 2020 after George Floyd's death and the you know, campaign of protests that took place afterwards, which were oftentimes punctuated in the evenings by paroxysms of violence and looting and in some cases just kind of out, outright anarchy and chaos. You also had during that same period, people declaring themselves sovereign states within the borders of existing states. We, we had a weird experience where there were these autonomous zones popping up all over the place, not for a night, not for a day. They endured. It was durable. And also we had what a hundred odd <laughs> night long siege. Um, uh, from federal buildings <laughs> at different places. Um, across the Taiwan. So it was, it was, it, it's complicated. And I think the de- depiction of that that happened in the media broadly was, you know, mostly peaceful became the euphemism for referring to this, which at the time I was very critical of. And in much the same way, there is a way of talking about this now and people are being very, very particular and determined about the way they're trying to police this. And the insistence is, well, it's not a riot. It's an, it's an insurrection. It's not even, it's not an insurrection. It's a coup. It's, uh, it's domestic terrorism is essentially the federal classification. And it seems to me that the binary, like the, whether it's either we're completely downplaying this or we're insisting that it is, you know, the maximalist yep. condemnation there, like it feels like this, it's complicated. It's yep. messy. And it was true of the protests in the summer. And it seems to me that it was certainly true of what took place on January 6th. What do you think are the the kind of important differentiators between those events in general? I mean, one being obviously a day and the other being a moment. I think that's part of it is, 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 you know, you had a very, very neat kind of single day there where you had, you know, First of all, you have a, a lot of kind of violent actors, at least on the right right now, that to a degree have been embraced by their own leadership, which the left doesn't have in the same degree. And and on that day, you had, you know, speech by Trump, a lot of bellicose rhetoric that night and then the morning. And then immediately after, this thing happens. So you can do two plus two and equals four. Meanwhile, you know, when you look at the stuff that went on in the protests over the 2020 summer, it, it was often, you know – you know, you have a protest and you have the violence at night. You have to do like three different math equations. You got to add two things together and divide something and then multiply. You still get to the same two that you get to with what happened or four. You get to with what happened in Washington, but it takes a lot of steps to get there. There's not as a direct a line. So it, it forms a very neat narrative. And like, look, I think we're all in the media. We know a good, simple narrative is easier to convey. You're, you're just drawn to it. We're human beings. Um, also, look, it happened in Washington, D.C. because there was a huge bias in what happens in, in, on the East Coast. If this had happened mm-hmm. in the middle of the country, it wouldn't have been the same. Um, yeah. Well, Portland. Yeah. I think that there's a, a couple of things there. I mean, you, you're right that, um, the, not only has the right, um, embraced and kind of incubated a lot of these ideas. Um, you know, one of those people was the president of the United yeah. States. So let's not forget that. But on the other side, I mean, there's there's elements of that. I mean, we can't forget that Kamala Harris did tweet like to raise money for bail. For right. And she mm-hmm. wasn't differentiating who's bail, not the ones who are actually looting, just the ones that have good political ideas. Uh-huh. And have, we'll find them. And like that, that wasn't it at all. So there was some element of that to it, too. And I, I do get slightly frustrated because it is very it's a very different thing. Right. I mean, this idea of stopping 
the uh, the certification of an election versus people, you know, running riots for, you know, Black Lives Matter, George Floyd, said in different cities. And that is constantly pointed out. And I get it and I'm on their side. The thing that I think is slightly different about this, though, is that no one is actually pointing out that there was essentially a different reaction to violence, period. Mm-hmm. You don't, I think it's really, really specific and kind of disingenuous to say that, like, no, no, we're upset about this one because it's a certificate to the election. It's like, no, no, come on now. No. This is political in nature. It is mm-hmm. people who are close to your politics and people who are, are miles from your politics. And that is a difference. Don't pretend that you have some sort of even killed look at this and violence is violence, but this one's more important because, because of the election. I mean, and then the other thing is, is that Matt, I don't know how, what you think about this. It's just something that I've been sort of rolling around in my head for a while is that is it when you, the words become so important to people and obviously it becomes important in a newsroom. You have to select how you refer to this. Are they insurrectionists? Are they rioters? Are they whatever they are? I mean, even in the George Floyd thing, are they looters? Are they, et cetera? And, and you know, I wonder about what the insurrectionist coup monger golpista kind of way of looking at it. Is there, do, do you have to have some idea of success? Right? I mean, do you know what I mean by this? So like if somebody says, I'm going to blow up the Murrah federal building and that's going to precipitate a revolution. Yeah. Are you a coup monger? Cause you're not, it's not going to happen, but yeah. you expect it to happen. You want it to happen. Yeah. And if that is the case, cause we use this language and when you use that language, it's only then that you establish that language that you can memorialize it every year and say, this was a traumatic day. As Kamala Harris said today, comparable to nine 11 mentioned the same breath of nine 11 and, and Pearl Harbor, which I, as I tweeted uh, today, the collective, death toll was over 5,000 people yeah. um, for those two days. And and that is, I mean, I think Joe Biden's speech was actually quite good um, and hers was not um, as is Shocked. to be expected, but wow. Just, no, wow. To be expected because she's a woman. Uh, no, because she's, she's a woman of color. She's very uh, bad at politics. Oh, oh. It's not even her oh. idea. She's shitty at politics. That's amazing. You, you mean she's, you're, she's you're making a determination people. about her quality <laughs> based on the things that she actually does. Yes, that's amazing. Yes. How novel. I don't like slam poetry ways of reading speeches <laughs> where everything takes 50 minutes. Like, I did this. Like, fucking get to the end of the sentence. But sorry about to take long on this. But, you know, do you, like, is it important or is it even kind of rational to say that this was a coup? Because people so are so invested in this. And personally, I really don't give a fuck. I like to kind of, you know, assess it on the merits of what happened that day. But why do you think people are so invested in in framing it that way? As a as a coup or two attempts, I, you know, I should say. I've I've given a lot of thought to this too. Uh, I I I don't know. I mean, I think there's a certain group of people that it's, it obviously fits a great narrative. Like if you are a Democratic Party operative, like this is is manna from heaven. You know, this mm-hmm. will help rile up your base. Um, I think that you know, to a lot of people, right and left, Trump was just a disaster on so many levels. Yeah, and he clearly did want to overturn the election. I mean, hundred percent. That's well documented. He was clear about it. Yeah. yeah, he was very old. I mean, he was publicly <laughs> clear about it. Um, and and so it fits together very, very neatly into that prepackaged narrative that 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 his opponents have been pushing for four years that that this man is going to end democracy. That's his goal here, and maybe yeah. it was his goal. And you know, this can be folded into it very neatly. It's a coup attempt, and and I guess in that broad sense, yeah, these people wanted to overturn the election. So sure. you're right, it's a coup attempt. But the same way that 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 Timothy McVeigh wanted to start a revolution. Sure. Yeah. Was he revolutionary? I don't know. I also just, and, and, and I'm, I'm, I, I'm sure it slipped into my copy occasionally, 
but you'll be mm-hmm. hard pressed to find a word where I use the word terrorist. And this was in the Middle East. This was in Afghanistan, yeah, in exactly. Africa. I hate the <laughs> word. I think it is terribly reductive. And when it's applied to brown people, white people, whomever, it doesn't matter. The same way, I mean, mm-hmm. insurrectionist. It doesn't really tell you anything. You're describing somebody rather than saying they attacked the Capitol. That's what you're talking about. You know, they broke a window. They battled the police officer. You can describe what they did without having to label it and let yeah. people decide for themselves what they think this is. That's a potent point. Like, like the focus on motivation. Like we're always asking about motivation. We're always speculating about yeah. motivation. Like actually focusing on the, the effect of yeah. deciding to label this in a particular way is incredibly important. And I, I suspect even amongst the four of us, not I suspect, I know because I'm hearing it, there are profound differences in how we might decide to characterize some of this. But here, at least on the fifth column, unsurprisingly, because we're so good, there is uh, a, an appreciation for the nuance um, of what was taking place there, that it may be fair to characterize some of the people who were be, who were there as as determined terrorists, yeah. as violent actors. There were also tourists, like and plenty of them. And I suspect that inside the building, you had people who got in because they fought their way in. You had people yeah. who showed up late and just wandered in. And you had other people who walked past police officers who were standing aside because they'd arrived late enough and said hello and went in. And you even see it in some of the video where some guys said, let's go in, it's time. And someone says, no, let's not do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it, um, it, but, it's such a big mix. And, and you know, you, you, you talk to the people who did, you look at their backstories and, and mm-hmm. what you get when you kind of, and, and this had bothered me since the day one of the coverage is that you get this kind of broad brush, Trump, white supremacy, you know, whatever. But you're there and, and look, there were bad people there. There were white supremacists in that crowd. There were militia members in that crowd. But look, mm-hmm. of the couple hundred people, what was it, four or 500 people have been arrested so far. I forget the exact number. I think by our account, only 75, about 10% of them were part of any organized group. Most of them had no affiliation to anything whatsoever, except maybe the Republican Party, um, mm-hmm. if that. And, and so, you know, it's easy to paint this as this kind of work of these terrorist groups looking to overthrow the government, whatever. But to me, that would be an easier problem to solve. Like if it's a bunch of militias, that's a law enforcement problem. We know where to find them. But yeah, these right. guys, these are your neighbors. This is a guy you work in the office with. This guy who drives a truck. It's somebody who works in the hospital. I mean, this is like, uh, remember in Fight Club, this is Project Mayhem, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. That's a whole lot more frightening. Um, and I think that's probably true in Portland. It's probably true everywhere there was political violence. Because we, we have a political violence problem at the moment. And we don't seem to be wrestling with that. We seem to want to break it out to know we have a Republican violence problem. No, we have an Antifa violence problem. And, 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 and I look around and say, well, no, there's just political violence at a scale that we have not seen here in generations. Yeah, Why I want to come back to that. Why do you think that? I mean, it, it, I know a lot of people would, would, would lay that at the feet of Donald Trump. And I think that's uh, appropriate in the, in the case of January 6th. But, you know, I mean, we had Timothy McVeigh, the Terry Nichols and these guys, the nineties, the kind of, militia movements. And I know that people were, were radicalized by Ruby Ridge and radicalized by Waco. I mean, what is the version of that that you see today in your reporting that actually brings people out to the Capitol on a day like that? You know, uh, people are angry and I don't, the why is, and we can probably argue about that for the next, you know, 30 minutes, um, 30 hours, 30 days, whatever. Um, But you go out and people are just pissed off in America. Yeah, I mean, Mm -hmm. I I was talking (laughs) Talking, I have an identical twin brother who's a surgeon and, and a very well compensated surgeon. And he was like, I'm pissed off. I want to quit my job. 
And you're like, and if people at the very top want to quit and say, screw it and give it up, mm-hmm. what's it like to be in the middle? You know, you got, it was, and it's not just the United States, right? Yeah. Like every, everywhere in the world, we are seeing palpable political unrest. Um, I mean, seriously, I can't think of a place where they're not seeing it. New Zealand beat COVID early on. They did the lockdowns real hard. And now they are seeing actual frustration amongst the public because of these lockdown orders, because of a number of different things. And we've been seeing escalating political violence. And anyone who's listened to this podcast for a long time has heard us talk about um, Revolt of the Public, Martin Gurry's really great book, which I think is a very useful guide to why there's so much weirdness um, right now. Uh, I'm, I was looking at the real clear investigations things. It was uh, uh, earlier, just because you mentioned um, like the number of arrests. Uh, they have uh, 710 arrests oh, wow. uh, for the 2021 Capitol riots. And they, they actually did something that I think is really valuable and would, would not have been novel a couple of years ago, where they actually did, you know, a thoughtful comparison and contrasting of a couple different things. 2021 Capitol riots, the 2020 protests, which are, again, harder to figure out, and the 2017 inaugural um, uh, riots which I don't think many people remember that there were riots after yeah, during the inauguration. 140 Spencer punching, right? Yeah. yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, and, and the contrast is interesting, like really, really interesting. Um, the, uh, the arrests, 710 on the Capitol riots, 16,241 during the George Floyd um, sort of protests and the 2017 riots, 234. Um, it, it's just like, it's interesting. The estimated damage, $1.5 million for the Capitol riots, the 2020 riots, $2 billion, which up to $2 billion, which I think they have one to $2 billion. I know Axios did an analysis on this as well. And it's like the most expensive, um, like insurance related, um, event in, in like years or the most expensive incidents, incident for insurers to have to cover, um, in the history of the country. And then the inauguration riots by comparison is nothing. It's like a hundred K. Um, but it's just, it's, it's interesting to compare those things. And it's hard for me to look at, you know, just kind of culpability for, the sixth, I think that's one conversation, and there's no doubt that Donald Trump's ridiculousness is to blame for that. But I think any analysis of all this that separates it from the broader dysfunction and the manifestations of political violence that we've been seeing in this country, not like we're flirting with it even, but we're there. It is a thing. Political violence is a reality of the American project in the way it's a reality of the American polity as it's uh, in the same way that it has been an aspect of the Jamaican political process for years. Yeah, the, the, the JLP and the PNP, I believe, correct me if I'm Just wrong. Um, um, do a concert. <laughs> yeah. yeah he, he tried to fix it. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> People were still killing each other. I have said many times in the podcast and, uh, you know, the ridiculousness of the sort of Weimar comparison, right? There is one, there is one thing that is actually appropriate there. And it's not, there's, there's nothing even close. I mean, remember in, uh, was it 1929, the Blut Mai, the Blood May of, of, of uh, May of two, 1929, there was 30 odd people that were murdered in one or two or, two or three days of yeah. uh, street violence against the KPD, the, the Communist Party and, and the Nazis. So that stuff doesn't hold at all. But what does actually kind of hold for me is the difference, I think, and the reason I fear that this is going to go on longer. And the reason I don't think there's a ton of comparison between this and people 
getting, you know, sprayed with hoses in the Netherlands about lockdown because lockdown can end, right? That can, COVID could just go away. We, we were hoping it's going to happen. It might not, but let's pretend it does. That dissipates. I think the thing that we're seeing here is that on both sides of this debate, it is, and actually include the George Floyd protests in this too, it is existential. Right. I mean, this are, these are people that say are every day I've seen in your newspaper had an unsigned editorial about this of democracy is at stake. That's one side. Everywhere every, you go. Every day is it's January 6th. Every day. Democracy is democracy going to survive? You know, the, the Atlantic has become, is, is it, is the democracy going to survive journal? And there's a lot of interesting people there doing some slightly less interesting work about this on the Trump <laughs> side is that the people that I've talked to, and I've talked to a lot of Trump people in the last four years, I've been out with these people a lot. I've been to a lot of rallies. And the thing that people make the mistake of is they think that the people out there are as cynical as Donald Trump. No, they believe it. The people storming the Capitol literally believe that the election was stolen. If you believe it was stolen, if you believe that democracy is at stake yourself. That is the same thing that you're arguing for, democracy at stake. Now, if you take the George Floyd thing, too, the people that you hear from, talk to, when I went out amongst those people briefly in New York – the chance are all that the entire system is rotten from top to bottom because it is suffused with white supremacy and you cannot get around it. It can only be burned to the ground. All of these things are existential. I think that is rather new to have so many spokes on the wheel thinking mm-hmm. the same catastrophic thing about this country. Well, both parties also insist that the election, electoral system is completely corrupt. The Democrats that's, insist that's, that's, that that's unless important. they're able to pass like a, a massive new federal reform, like all future elections will be stolen. Um, and <laughs> Republicans completely believe that the next election will probably they be stolen. They believed it for years. Right. Remember the yeah. name of Hewitt's book. Yeah. yeah. So, I, I don't, I don't I think there's been an election. If, in the if it's since, not close, they can't steal. Yeah. Since, since Gore, Gore v. Bush, I don't think we've had an election where there haven't been a, a palpable number of people who actually believe that the election was fraudulent in some way. And I'm confident. And in fact, I've looked at the data I've looked at the data and I think it's gotten a bit worse, like almost every single year. Nobody wanted to be stolen by Romney. (laughs) (laughs) They stole it from Mitt. No, that's fine. No, no, no. We didn't have to. Low energy Mitt. (laughs) I got a question, Matt, about the the, the kind of, uh, Moynihan was referring to this earlier. There's an effort to kind of browbeat on the journalism side, Mm. like Margaret Sullivan from the Washington Post, who used to be the public Mm -hmm. editor of the at the New York Times, and I think the editor of the Buffalo paper. Um, and it's a big voice in, in, uh, in kind of journalism thinking, uh, circles. She basically wrote a rah-rah column earlier this week saying that, that newspapers and, and media organizations need to center that dreaded verb, mm-hmm. need to center their coverage around pro-democracy. Shout it from the rooftops since this might be the last election that we have. Um, and that's not an outlier. We see a lot of that. The uh, aforementioned editorial in your newspaper kind of had similar notes. But a lot of people who think and talk about journalism and practice journalism are using this. And and as a as a Jay Rosen as, or Jay Rosen, I mean Jay Rosen's ideas have finally kind of come to fruition. Every time I write anything, now I get hit with an accusation of both sidesism. Yeah. So high five, Jay. Um, which is great because now it's been replaced by one sidedism. <laughs> yeah. really yeah. Yes, one of the things that Margaret Sullivan. This is a little tiny little detour, but Margaret Sullivan uh, linked to all these different people doing the things, including the Bart Gelman uh, seventy-nine trillion word uh, cover story in the Atlantic, which had a whole section uh, that was basically called "Just Like Milosevic," which is uh, 
Not a really good comparison. <laughs> not. It's just not a good yeah, comparison. It's ridiculous. Huh. But, uh, our Srebrenica, <laughs> but, but, uh, pointed to an AP story that the headline was something along the lines of like, you know, slow motion coup or something. And she looked at it approvingly and I clicked on it and, and it was about a thing that, that worries me. And I think is a, a topic of really interesting journalistic inquiry, which is the extent to which the uh, Trump and his people are trying to, uh, restock election officials in local places, especially battleground yeah, yeah, sure, states sure. and to try to change the, the vote counting rules. Okay. That's very interesting. I want to know more. I don't know a whole lot about it. And in this AP story, uh, that was just a week ago, it had a phrase like, uh, you know, experts agree that we've never seen in American history someone try to politicize the administration of elections. And I'm like, <laughs> and I just put it on Twitter, like as yeah, a, yeah, as, great, an, yeah, as yeah. an informational, yeah. like, Hey, does this ring true? And a great guy named Caleb Cage, just a cranky writer from Reno, Nevada is like, uh, here's this thing called the secretary of state's project that George Soros funded after the 2000 election to get, um, sec- democratic secretaries in battleground states to make uh-huh. sure that Obama <laughs> ran like totally memory hole. Uh-huh. And like, not mentioned yeah, in the, it's a one side system. <laughs> this is not like both sides saying, well, you know, this is equal to that. I don't know if it's equal to that because you didn't fucking mention it. <laughs> you only mentioned the one thing except <laughs> democracy was dying over here. So this is a question, man, uh, which is to say, do you think that this approach, this sort of like this telling journalists that they need to adjective more and that mm-hmm. they need to call this by its name, which is that democracy is in peril. Um, and maybe you believe democracy in peril. Maybe I do. I think I might believe that democracy in peril. But do you think that's a that's a good approach journalistically? Um, no. I mean, the short answer is, <laughs> is absolutely not. Um, first of all, first of all, any any the center is a verb. Just we need to like it, it, it's, it's <laughs> stop. Um, yeah. and what's bad is it's coming from the left, but the right wing is going to adopt that sooner or later too. Like oh, we're going to be talking yes. about centering. Things oh yeah, things yeah. Shooters. Yeah, yeah. And um, and and so let's uh, we're done with centering. And then, um, and then, you know, I think there is, <clears throat> I think, you know, there is a threat to democracy, but part of that is getting hysterical that, you know, the mm-hmm. role the media plays, the role the commentators can play is to keep a level head and to kind of step back and say, whoa, okay, guys, like this looks bad and it is bad. Restocking secretaries of state with political hacks is a bad idea. Um, it's not a new idea, you know, and, <laughs> and here's some perspective, you know, that throughout right. our history, and, and our constitution was designed in an effort to kind of limit the ability of politics to influence how elections are run and how the government is run up to a point. But there's also a realization that like the idea that there's a neutral expert out there, there's some kind of larger voice that can be in the government or, or the experts agree. I mean, I think we can all agree experts never agree on anything. And, and that there's some kind of neutral objective truth out there is also dangerous and that our system was designed with that in mind, that we have elections to choose leaders who then are going to be political creatures. That's what they do. And that politics is going to shape our society. And the politics we use to, so we don't have violence shaping our society. We have elections and we use politics rather than fighting with each other. But it's really contingent on, you know, we can only have successful elections if, if people are willing to be governed by people they didn't vote for. And, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. something that I think in our lifetimes have certainly seemed to have continually diminished. Um, from from the Clinton years, I mean, I was I remember I, don't know, I remember the first Bush presidency and the Reagan presidency, but not particularly well. And I don't remember the Carter presidency at all. Um, you were that high, that high. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
<laughs> but I mean, I, you know, I remember the Clinton stuff and there was the opposition, but you know, they were still working together. They still got stuff done. And then I was fully aware and involved after Bush won and, and you know, back and forth. And then the Obama stuff, the birtherism came up and, and then Trump came and, you know, he's going to destroy us. And now Biden, you know, you talk to the Trump people, he's stole the election. They're communists. I mean, there is a real unwillingness to kind of be governed by the other side and a real willingness to see the other side as a monolith. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this really brought home to me, me and two colleagues back in October had done this like sprawling 7,000 word story about these seven, six guys, seven, six, seven guys on January 6th who had didn't know each other. They had nothing to do with each other. And then kind of came together on the steps of the Capitol in like a 90 second moment and beat the living daylights out of the three cops and they were all kind of been charged together. And we just kind of went to their towns, tried to find out who these guys are and how this all kind of happened. And, and of course, you know, you treat them like human beings because that's the whole goal here. So of course mm-hmm. the story runs, you get a fair amount of like, you know, why do you making excuses for them? How dare you, you know, right. As, as, right. as, as fellow Americans. And, <laughs> and one of a, a good friend of mine, a guy who is a smart guy, he was worked in Washington. He's kind of minorly involved in democratic politics, wrote me these impassioned text messages about, you know, like, you know, you've got to take this seriously, man. Like they're out to get us. They're going to destroy us. It's like, dude, these guys are not a monolith, man. These are like, these are a lot of them are pretty sad characters, you know, and they did mm-hmm. something really bad. They're going to spend a long time in jail because of it, and they should. Um, yeah. But that that inclination to see that other side as a monolith, and when you go talk to the to the Trump supporters, they will tell you the Democrats, it's all like CRT, BLM, commie stuff. They're coming sure. to get us, right? And I, I hear the same thing all the time that that, they, that that it's the end of the world that we yep. need to essentially what we need to do is abandon liberal values and norms. We need to abandon any sort of general sensibilities that these are our fellow humans and fellow Americans. We need to find a way to live together because they're that bad. Their ideas are that dangerous and they're going to destroy us if we don't destroy them. It's happening. The mutual reactionary hysteria is like, it's deeply disturbing. And to the extent I believe there's a threat to the polity, I think it is precisely, it is precisely that as you were um, alluding to the, the persistent um, belief that everyone is evil, um, that they, they're, that none of the other side can't be trusted um, and that we have to abandon all of our norms um, in favor of violence if necessary to stop them. But I, I want to, can I, can I turn us to this specific thing about journalism that you're talking about, Matt? Um, Welch, <laughs> because I think there's, there's, I'm curious about your perspectives collectively on what, what journalism ought to be doing in this moment. If we agree that this push towards centering, which I think is pretty much the same thing as the moral clarity that Wes Lowry was calling for, which I think is a kind of fundamentalism, right? Like we agree on these things. These are the people and ideas that are okay. Everything beyond this is unacceptable. And we're not going to talk about this. <laughs> that's the truth. And that's it. I've been and told. Shouldn't be, shouldn't be platformed to use. Right. That center right. right. Yeah. And, I, and I also heard you, Matt, talk about the objectivity as a standard, which used to be kind of the shared goal. And we know objectivity is impossible. I don't know that most Americans who read the news actually appreciate that. Um, but I don't believe that pursuing that kind of goal of trying to ape objectivity is a particularly useful goal to try to get back to. 
I don't think trying to get people to agree on that is necessarily as valuable as developing like some sort of new framework for helping to both kind of set something, a goal that we can aspire to and lay out a roadmap for how we actually do this work. Like establishing some, some guideposts like transparency and curiosity and nuance and being, being willing to interrogate your own perspective. If you believe that those people are monsters, fine. At least be willing to give me some complication in your story. Complicate the narrative in a way that tells me that you can consider how you might be wrong about this or what it might look like if they weren't the worst people in the world. What questions can you inject into your, into your reportage that would actually be, be instructive to people who might disagree with you? Um, and it seems to me that those are better practices and principles to focus on than well, what we need is journalists to be objective again, uh, because that didn't work. Like we're here. That was the standard for a while and it wasn't sufficient. I mean, when, when, when I hear objective and when I hear moral clarity, I, I reach my wallet. I'm just like, all right, something's wrong here. Um, I mean, I think, I think, I think we'll agree here. Like, like our job is, is to be as fair as we can and to try and convey what we've learned in as clear and as we think is kind of uh, accused to the truth, used to reality as best we can ascertain it. That, you know, none of us are omniscient. None of us have a perfect view of anything that we're writing about. Um, <clears throat> and, and the way you do that is, is you, you ask questions, you know, you ask questions with an open mind and you try to be faithful to those answers. I, I think we live in a cultural moment where everybody thinks they have the answers and journals are going to reflect that, you know, and mm-hmm. too many journals probably think they have the answers when they don't. Um, if they did, more people would trust us, I imagine. Um, and not many people do, um, which is something we should probably think about. Um, I don't know. I could bram a lot about this, but you guys probably have more better well, no, I, than yeah. I do. No, I think that's right. I mean, you said a word right after objectivity. I mean, it's often used as a synonym, a synonym for fairness. And I think yeah. that that's what you strive for. Yeah. Is that I talked to a guy on the phone today who was like trying to rescind an interview that he did with me. And he's like, you're going to burn me like everybody else has. And I said, no, I'm not. You know, you can only burn yourself, number one. But number two, it's a boring story. <laughs> I don't have you in there. And I'm not going to set you up. My job is not to convince people in this very narrow story of an issue that I, I'm not invested in myself. I don't really care about it, but I think it's fairly interesting. But as far as like, the, the I think the unique thing in, in Trump world, in Trump times, is the thing that I got from a lot of people for a couple of people that I interviewed. Um, Alex Jones, this was 2016 before Trump's inaugurated. Um, so it wasn't really, really hot at the time, but like what happened to Megyn Kelly when she did an interview with him for, for NBC, um, and Steve Bannon. And I did get the platforming thing. And now there is a sense that, that never happened in the past, never ever happened in the past. You talk to the militia guys, you talk to the people that created the Clinton death list and all that bullshit that you got from Jerry Falwell, et cetera. And the thing is now is this sense that if you're platforming them, our job as journalists are essentially, we're like a teacher's union. We have to teach the American people and we don't want to teach them all the wrong <laughs> lessons. They're not smart enough to actually get this. If you give them students ideas, they might like them. Yes. No, no. So we have to get them off of all the platforms because if we narrow the access to it. And so it's funny in a way because it's, it's not... You know, coming from the government, so this is not an exact parallel, but it's the instinct is that 
We're talking so much about anti-democratic instincts in the death of democratic institutions. And what is our response to this is we have to, as Camille was saying, we have to be a little anti-democratic ourselves. We have to pull people away from all of these ideas because they might be infected by them. And our job is to say after every time Trump says something or some shithead in the Trump administration, because God knows it was fucking full of shitheads, would say something, you would have the parenthetical that, you know, it wasn't true. Somebody says this comma that cannot be verified that is not true. And as I've pointed out a thousand times in this podcast, that habit has gone away. Unless we're going back January January 6th. And one of the other things that I thought was interesting today was that somebody was talking, somebody made a little crack about, oh, I guess everyone forgets the Capitol Hill police officer that was killed um, a couple of days later. Um, I actually was on, I was behind the fence on the hill doing, I was with Adam Kinsinger actually, during the funeral that they had there. There wasn't many, there wasn't a lot of media covering it, but that was a guy who was killed by... um, I guess he was like a five percenter or like a nation of Islam guy. He was like a black Muslim, I think, of some, some variety. And, and somebody said, well, people forgot about that. And then response, no, 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 it was all over the internet. It was all over the internet. And by the way, he had, he was like mentally ill too. And it's like, well, yes, we apply that sometimes because if you want to talk about the horn guy, and if you want to talk about the guy that I read about who was the black guy who was in like Godspell or something, the, mm-hmm. the guy that was arrested January 6th, yeah. who, yeah. if you, look at the stuff that he's written and said he has a serious mental health problem and right. a lot of these people seem to and that's what it attracts i mean the QAnon people we just batter them because they're fucking lunatics and i've talked to them and i'm like i can't wait to get out of there because i'm just like you guys are so crazy that you can't even push back because like you just make something else up but i always get the the impression that there's something deeply wrong with them and that's a different issue that you know we don't we can't really talk about much anymore because it, it upsets a narrative. And I think journalistic narrative is the stuff that, that upsets me so much. It's not like objectivity or fairness. It's that we're driving towards individual narratives and anything that mm-hmm. upsets that narrative is tossed to the side. And if you ask, if you talk about it, you're like, stop platforming those people. You're going to give people ideas. Mm-hmm. You think I mean, the QAnon, QAnon shaman who you mentioned went in 41 months um, in, in prison was the yeah. sentence there. 48 months in prison for the one of the young men who was effectively kind of pegged as a ringleader um, in burning down that police station uh, over the summer um, mm-hmm. in 2020. So it's an interesting point of comparison. Worth noting, QAnon Shaman, in addition to being kind of uh, a bit of a lunatic, um, <laughs> uh, I believe the principal crime is trespassing. Don't believe he perpetrated any acts of violence um, there. I think he also left a, a note uh, that was deemed to be kind of threatening, like justice is coming or something like that. Um, and led, led a prayer. Yeah, led a prayer um, on the floor of the Capitol while he was in there. So I don't know. I'm not saying it's not bad. I'm not saying he shouldn't face some sort of jail time. But damn it, there's something about that that seems very, very odd. Um, but Welch, I think you were going to weigh in on the journalism thing, which I would love to hear. Yeah. I mean, um, I would just point out that to your point that you're just making, uh, Camilla, Glenn Greenwald had a piece today with a pretty biting lead, basically saying that, you know, the number of people who've been, uh, charged with insurrection or terrorism or blah, blah, blah is the same as the number who were killed by the rioters. Uh, you know, you can fill in the blank, but yeah. the, the punchline is basically zero. Um, and a lot of, I, I went and read 
so many democracy in peril stories. And I didn't really do it out of, out of like, I'm going to show these guys that they're wrong. I actually wanted to find out why my <laughs> suspicions that they might be right are true. And so I was very disappointed ultimately in the coverage, um, uh, because of that. Um, but you would see open beseeching on the part of, uh, Bart Gelman from the Atlantic. Like, why aren't we trying these people for insurrection? Like just exasperated that we're not doing enough and that Biden isn't like making the speech to end all speeches to do it. Um, and it's funny. They're domestic neocons, right? I mean, in the way that they're like, you know, we need to bring democracy to home, not in the way that the neocons were, were like, you know, James Q. Wilson and broken windows policy, but like, it's funny that Bart Gilman is now kind of like, we need to prosecute terrorism and we have to bring democracy to America. And it's like, wow, you sound like Norman Podhurst. But like, it's kind of funny. That's really, I mean, really weird. I'm sure okay, you, that's fine. I'm sure you enjoyed the uh, comparisons to uh, the IRA, which uh, reminds me of uh, what you were saying uh, uh, earlier, Matt, about the age um, that you were kind of disturbed by the, uh, the advanced age. There's a bit in the Atlantic piece that pointed out that the median age of the people arrested or taking part in some, some cross section there was like 41. Um, and, uh, and this was treated as, and th- that's unusual, right? Cause if it's, if it's terrorism, if it's insurrection, if it's unrest, who are those people? They're just dudes. They're like 23 year old dudes who don't have jobs. That's been the way the world has worked forever. And that's not who those pieces people were. And this is treated as like, uh, oh my God, this is the, the you know, this is something new and terrible and horrible because they're young. Um, no, at this point, it's, it's new and horrible because they're old. And so we can't yeah. somehow see them. But I wonder, and this is sort of an open question, um, going to questions of violence and even the, uh, Timothy McVeigh thing. I wonder sometimes if like at the precise moment that we're all like talking about civil war, and I don't mean we all, but the, the mm-hmm. culture talking about, uh, violence and all this kind of stuff. Is it possible that this shit crested? I mean, when the Murrah building was blown up, um, that was the end. Yep. That was the end of the motion movement. Right. It went away. Yes. It mm-hmm. was not there anymore. Um, there's a lot of people being arrested. The Proud Boys is just not going to be a very effective no. organization going forward. I'm predicting, um, because they got themselves screwed, um, in this process. And I wonder if we're, if we're looking at this, um, in a similar way of, of like, uh, you know, First, that there weren't a lot of 23-year-olds. We don't really have to be all that scared. Antifa actually is much younger. You know, the median age of the asshole in Portland is probably 26-year-old, you know, uh, uh, gender-fluid anarchist or something, um, as opposed to like rando QAnon 41-year-old. But I wonder if if we have hepped ourselves so high that this is going to be the new violent times when, in fact, and there's actually a pretty good piece by Jacob Solemn parsing um, the, uh, the, all the surveys that talked about uh, people's willingness to use violence and the questions that are used to, to provoke that don't seem to uh, be all that great. Um, whether, you know, we might have scared ourselves. We, is I it think possible right. that we scared ourselves he, yeah. straight yeah. from this? And also, do Americans do talk about this? Like, do Americans really care about January 6th with the, with the same it's, passion that the media it's class does? in the readings of CNN and MSNBC. To the, extent, to the extent you care about this, uh, I think uh, Matt pointed this out earlier, it, it has everything to do with your politics, the way that you care about it, in my uh-huh. estimation. Um, and one... Yeah, I think the age thing is interesting. I suspect it's also interesting that so many of these people, like, relatedly, 
were willing to just talk to you on, on camera, man. Mm-hmm. They are giving their names. They're doing this stuff while videos them videoing themselves and live streaming this mm-hmm. shit to the world. They are proud. They are declaring it's 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 gonna be a revolution. And this this is like a sixty five year old mother of five who drives a minivan that she shares with her cousin Doris. You yeah. know, it, it's She's also it's, a Holocaust denier. There's there's a sense there's a sense in which there's a sense in which it it. I think all of those factors reflect the broader normalization of this kind of activity in the country. And I don't think we've scared ourselves. In fact, I don't think that the only, the only thing we have to worry about here is whether or not we'll see more violence during the next election. I think it's the, it's the way that it is kind of transforming the, the, our sensibilities about what, who is good and who is bad and what we ought to do with bad people and our sensibilities about even like civil liberties. I keep hearing sentiments like the, the, the protections that the constitution affords are, are now being used to safeguard like white, whiteness or white nationalism or yeah. white supremacy. Like that's the problem that, that, you know, QAnon shaman wants to be able to get out on bail or something like that. That's the problem. That's perilous and we shouldn't allow it. Mm-hmm. But more than all of that, I, it is. It is ten. It is of tantamount importance that we don't forget that on November third of twenty twenty, the Washington Post runs an article with a headline that says, "Fearing post-election violence, retailers board up windows and hire extra security." And the image that's down there um, is, and, and it, it opens, excuse me, by talking about stores in Beverly Hills. I do not have an expectation that they were expecting the vanguard of MAGA supporters to drive through in pickup trucks and start bashing the windows. They were in boarding fact, up in DC and in Soho. I don't in fact, Beverly Hills has a, has a little Trump uh, nugget. There's a Republican. There, there may be, but I don't think that's what they were preparing for the, the storm against. I think everyone was afraid of, and the reason I fled New York and I'm willing to admit this candidly, the reason, part of the reason I fled New York, I sold my house. I went to closing. The day before the election, <laughs> um, I left because I was concerned about what the hell might happen in the city. I was concerned wow. about the summer of violence. And I was also concerned about what? having my family in the city after the election. If Did there you was have a diaper on when you went in the airport? <laughs> no, 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 I'm not, I'm not that much of a pussy. I'm going to um, literally go to college and make an ambassador. And he's like, motherfucker's not Jamaican. But I'm, but I'm, but my expectation was, but my expectation was either, either Trump wins, either Trump wins decisively, or there is a, pro- a prolonged period of uncertainty and you will see violence in the streets as you had months earlier and it is it is important that members of the the political party that is in power and i'm not calling them out in particular because i think they're the worst i'm calling them out in particular because this is largely ignored we're in fact calling for bail for these people broadly speaking who were doing things that ended up getting them arrested were they getting arrested for simply peaceful for being mostly peaceful or were they getting arrested because they were part of the horde that pulled up to a store in a Bentley SUV and smashed the windows and, you know, took a bunch of Balenciaga sneakers? 
which I don't like the look of those things, but they're very expensive. So I can understand why you'd steal them. What I find kind of remarkable is even when you're talking earlier about the people videoing themselves, you're talking to me on camera, and even how you perceive that depends on your politics at this point. If you're mm. like hard work repressive, that's because it's white entitlement. They feel so entitled. They'll be <laughs> anything. It's true. And, and if you're a hardcore right winger, it's like, well, dude, they're like 1776. I mean, this is a Boston Tea Party. Of course you want to put that on camera. You know, and, and meanwhile, in the middle, they're, me, they're fucking morons. Yeah. It's <laughs> just like these guys are just dumb. Like, you, you don't, <laughs> don't, don't confess to federal crimes on camera. Um, like, we also just seen months of people not really getting arrested for this shit, or yeah. at least not facing any serious consequences. They, in New York, they vacated a bunch of these cases, just like, no, nah, no, nah, we're not going to prosecute these people. I mean, that usually happens in like large scale protest demonstrations. A lot of people get arrested who don't really commit any really violent acts, and they Why didn't just, that get let out three days later, a day later. And people, why didn't that happen here, man? You know, I think it happened in public. It it, it 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 embarrassed the FBI. It embarrassed law enforcement on a number of levels. Um, mm-hmm. And look, here's the thing, though, is that almost everybody who is currently sitting in the everybody sitting in the DC jail at the moment is has been arrested and has committed a serious felony. The people who are, I think, there are forty of them. They're not like some dude who just wandered into the Capitol. You know, those are not the people who, who everybody. In my understanding, at least, is that it. it you know. Nearly everybody or, or all of them or the vast majority of them have committed violent or are accused of committing violent crimes. Um, I suspect there will be cases that are dismissed, that are like let off, that, that, that do, you know, you're not going to get 700 people sent to jail unless, but the violent ones are, are definitely, they're going. I mean, QAnon Shaman was not a violent, it wasn't violent. Yeah, He's he, gone to jail for, for 41 months. He had the misfortune of being the QAnon Shaman. I mean, right. if he had, said they wanted to make an example of him. Yeah, exactly. Right. If he had gone in in like a t-shirt that said like, you know, I don't know, like yeah. Pat's auto garage. Would anybody have noticed him? Yeah. Or the Auschwitz t-shirt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's certainly been other people convicted who weren't, who weren't violent, who got convicted of trespassing or something yes. of the like and had to serve in, in those cases though, like much less time and even got time served. But I mean, you have people in, 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 um, solitary confinement who were not violent, like QAnon shaman. And again, it's just, that's where we are. Like, these are people who are getting arrested for crimes that have a political valence um, and being used, made an example of. Um, and, In the language of the judges. I mean, that's, that's yeah. like, you can hear them say that. But that's also not uncommon. I mean, you, you, there's a lot of times that people do things to make examples of people. And I think that, I don't, they don't have to be very shy about it's it. Whether political that's valence that's, that, that makes it different. different. It's the political valence. I mean, it seems to me like the, the January 6th committee um, that is investigating all of this, it, one, I don't know that they have revealed anything that is particularly shocking. Or revelatory. Well, they just just bring Linda Manuel Miranda to the floor. <laughs> <laughs> that was, that was shocking. Yeah, well, that, that was shocking. But but I don't. I mean, it, it seems to me that the the thing that they have done of greatest significance here, perhaps, is subpoena people, and which is their right, and submit their names, the former Trump officials, former Trump um, surrogates, to the Justice Department, and now they are being prosecuted. For crimes, these these are explicit, like kind of prosecutions that are in fact kind of political, because these people decided they were not going to come to D.C. to sit in front of this committee that is overwhelmingly controlled by Democrats, that is narrowly interested in January sixth, and that 
explicitly decided to prohibit particular Republicans from participating. And that seems important. It seems like an important Rubicon to be crossing. I I think there's a world in in which, in which, you know, right that, you know, maybe this has crested, maybe this is the worst of it. And we're going to look back and see the Mueller investigation, the Durham investigation, the Senate investigation, the only people who get prosecuted are process crimes, lying to the yeah. FBI, refusing to, uh, refusing to testify. And we're going to have a, a ton of prosecutions of, of, of prominent people who were all just kind of, they are process crimes, you know, and, and be like, what the hell are we doing here? Um, that's the best case scenario. I hope. Um, I fear that that's not where we end up. Um, I, I do, I, I think, you know, Without weighing the merits of the prosecuting and everything, I, I I know as an American, and I think as a journalist, I'm concerned watching watching parts of our kind of political system cheer on the idea of treating fellow Americans like under a terrorism law, the idea of like denying people bail. That you know, mm-hmm. I think we all saw what happened in the last 20 years. You know, we all did terrible things to foreigners under the guise of fighting terrorism. Why do we want to unleash that on our own people is beyond, you know. Um, That's why it doesn't surprise me that Glenn Greenwald has ended up where he has. I mean, all. he seems to be applying mm-hmm. the same thing here. And I mean, we've, we've, we've kept you for a while, Matt. If I can ask you um, one kind of broad final question, but, but you know, answer it as narrowly as, as you uh, see fit. What do you think after after a year of this, after being there on January 6th of last year, where we have come today, whether it's the kind of weird ceremonies on the floor with Lin-Manuel Miranda, the political jockeying, the, you know, Bannon saying, I'm not going to come testify, that all of this stuff. How do you see it a year later? I, I think it's, it's, it, I think it, it, it really is kind of representative of our times. We're like, look, something very bad happened on January 6th. We can agree. This was bad. And, and, and the Democrats aren't wrong to want to get to the bottom of this and dig into it. But it is also a political act and it's very easy to be politicized. And so their overreach is, is, is pushed back on the other side, creates an opening. And suddenly, you know, this is just a mere political fight, nothing more. Um, and that's a problem. You know, we don't want to reduce acts of violence to the later political footballs. We just want to deal with acts of violence and, and put them away and make them stop happening. And then also the other realization is between what I heard the night before at the rally on the 5th with the guys talking about we're here to fight Antifa and then going out and reporting stories this year and talking to people who'd been there. I think, and I know I have colleagues who agree with me on this, that it, it's, it seems pretty apparent to us that most of the people came with the idea that they were there to fight Antifa. They were to mm-hmm. fight the commies, the leftists, whatever, that the capital wasn't the goal. Um, now, it may have been for some of them, you know, I think there mm-hmm. probably were some who were thinking that, but that, you know, for a lot of the kind of poster boys of this, the guys who were beating people on the steps, who's guy who tased um, Fanon, whose FBI interview is a fascinating read, they thought they were going to fight Antifa. You know, the capital is where they ended up. And, and they did there and they're responsible for what they did. You know, it doesn't exonerate them in any way, shape or form, but it does kind of cast events in a slightly different light. It looks a lot mm-hmm. less body. And like, look, we may one day find evidence that there was some grand plot here that goes all the way from Trump down, down. I covered Washington a bit in the Trump years. That was not exactly, um, <laughs> it wasn't just the deep state leaking. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> so I find it hard to believe that, that, that they've kept this gigantic plot secret while like Mark Meadows talking points are getting out every other day or something. 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but this, this is the secret they're all keeping. Um, so I, 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 but I do think that, you know, I hope that we've rested. Uh, I think we shall hope for that. I, I'm not sure we have. And um, we're going to find out, I guess. So it's kind of like the Russia investigation in a way that there's individual wrongdoing and, and crappiness. And our friend Eli Lake wrote a very good piece about what was true and what, what wasn't true. And Trump sucked, but it wasn't as bad as, as it was initially made out. It seems to be kind of the same thing here, right? In the sense that like there was some hope uh, from, and I use that word advisedly, there was some hope from people at the beginning that there was going to uncover an enormous uh, coordinated kind of Steve Bannon Guawangue plot or something yeah. that, that started at the top. That doesn't seem to be true, but it seems to be that there's there's some some ugliness in there. It's just not um, as orchestrated as people were expecting it to be. No, I think I think that that's certainly the way it looks right now. Of course, yeah. like tomorrow, there's going to be a ton of evidence. We're going to eat our words, but <laughs> I, I'm just going to delete I'm, this. If that's yeah. The case. yeah, I'm I'm, skept- I'm skeptical that that evidence will ever materialize because it is very hard for me to believe that this was sort of centrally coordinated in that way. It just I don't think evidence, the president has the attention span for that. People sing when they're when when the government turns the screws on them. They really sing. They're going to tell you mm-hmm. what happened and who they were taking orders from. You know, you got federal people. federal investigation, congressional yeah, investigation. Every journalist in America interested in finding something. I mean, we hear all the things. So I don't know, Matt. I do know this. I am grateful for you spending some time with us. I think this has yeah, been so elucidating and valuable. And honestly, like cable news and such generally brain poison and not good for you. Um, but the fifth column this is great. I think this is the most important part of your media diet. And yeah. once again, we have delivered phenomenal product to you. And I say that with all modesty and due yeah. respect um, because I deserve it. You, know, you really have to tell us when you quit, you quit the New York Times and then you can really talk. I was once a CNN contributor and since I'm no like longer a CNN contributor, I can tell you, I agree with you on the, on the brain poison. Yeah, <laughs> but they do pay you all as a contributor. Don't they? Yeah, uh, I'd like to pretend that, that that was my decision, but you know, me and Milton. Fuck them! I was I wouldn't gonna let them renew me. Well, I, I I mean I think I could probably say it was kind of my decision. Like there's some there's some there's some stories there. Um, yeah. Well, thank you very much, Matt, and uh, we'd love to have you back sometime. Talk some more about other things, uh, but we will we will let you go, and we'll talk shit about you after we are finished. Excellent. Yep. It'll be amazing. I can't wait to hear it. Yeah. Thanks. We know of new methods of attack. Well, let's just talk shit about Matt. Well, we should we should definitely talk shit about Matt, and at a minimum, we have to talk shit about his his coworkers. Wow. I mean, this this column that I just saw ignoring Trump didn't work. Biden goes after a defeated former president. Um, and the, the first paragraph is just bonkers for most of his first year in office. President Biden has bet that he could move the country past the divisiveness of his president of his predecessor by restoring a sense of normalcy to the white house, practicing the traditional brand of politics. He learned over decades in the Senate as vice president and largely ignoring the man he reforms refers to as the former guy. It didn't work. I don't know what that what means. That mean? What does that mean? 
What does it mean that it didn't work? It didn't work in the sense that we're still divided. And you imagine, <laughs> imagine what today would have been like if Trump was on Twitter. Like, I mean, you didn't hear a peep from him. Did you? No, you saw the statement from him. Oh, did he have a statement? Oh, it was fucking insane. It was insane. Yeah. yeah. Just yeah. like, I didn't even hear it. Immediately Biden, oh, yeah. invasion, open borders, the lies. It was, it was, it was beautiful. Like, By the way, what happened to the border? Is that done? Did the crisis over? I haven't heard about that in a while. I mean, uh, I don't know. Kamala solve it? Was it her 9-11, her Pearl Harbor? I don't know. No, I mean, Biden has been using many of the same exact uh, things that Trump used. I mean, the, the fact that he went in in the early days of Omicron and did the travel ban to South Africa, yeah, yeah. this didn't get any at all. <laughs> no, 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 no. Do you know when, when Trump did the travel I mean, ban? We, we talked about it. Oh, yeah. When Trump yeah. did the travel ban, Biden's like, that's super racist, and we're yeah. not going to ever do that. Yeah. Yeah, but there's a lot of white people in South Africa, yeah, yeah. and those people are racist. <laughs> anti-racist. <laughs> are, 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 are there a few left? <laughs> Are there a few left? Um, no, it's South Matt, Africa. Way, I just want to say before we go on, because I Rosenberg, I, 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 on, Rosenberg not you. you. I'm going to anticipate people because I know our listeners very well. Um, do you, you understand? You're good that, at uh, anticipating the anti-Semitism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah, I mean, do you yeah. understand? We understand. He controls the media. Why do you have those people? Like Joe Rogan. It, <laughs> it was very. I was not expecting. He's that. jacked. He's jacked. Fucking jacked. Like I wouldn't be like uh backing down from some LARP, No, that's why they said yeah. yeah, some like it, you know it's funny it's like I was in Afghanistan I'm like you know you didn't see some 400 pound <laughs> Taliban guy running towards you and having a heart attack <laughs> before an interview? No, it didn't happen. No. Uh, one thing you can say about the Taliban they're in pretty good shape. They were pretty thin people. Thin, they were yeah. thin people. Probably not by design. But we say this about Matt, and, and I, I'm just going to anticipate your fucking bullshit. So stop doing your bullshit before you um, even put your fingers on the keyboard. The reason somebody like Matt is not going to talk as much as we do is because Matt is a journalist with the New York Times. And you have to choose everything very, very wisely when you're a journalist. And you cannot come in swinging in the way that we do. We are talking about things in a very punchy, swinging way. And Matt is giving us um, very good commentary on the ground and from reporting so it's a that is going to be noticeable it always is when you talk to journalists so if you uh if you don't mm -hmm. understand that then uh, i've just taught you something and he wasn't uh, well, go, go back and listen to the ben smith interviews before he uh before he departed the times this week to start a new venture i would imagine that if we that was like talking to somebody in a committee who's in the mafia <laughs> it was like leaning into the microphone like uh i i have no answer to that sir I, I mean, a lot of his writing since then. What is La Familia, sir? We're all, we're all friendly with Ben, despite his limp noodle performance on his little, <laughs> we love him. I understand. Um, I understand it too. Um, but like, but his writing since then, at least like three or four of his pieces were Samistat, were like the, in, in the sense, uh, yeah. that the point of them was to read between the lines. He gave you enough material to come up with mm -hmm. your own conclusions of them. Uh, and I would say this to his face. I'm saying this in public. Um, and, but he wouldn't connect those lines necessarily in his oh, own yeah. language. Yeah. Um, because you, yeah. the, those conclusions were things that probably wouldn't be too favored among the predominant views within the newsroom, which makes for fascinating reading on some level, but it also must be mm -hmm. frustrating as fuck. I mean, just like, um, people who actually engage in Samastat, right? Who are trying to create works of art in communist countries um, where it was all about like, can I intuit this sort of like sure. this physical action that you would understand that this is anti-regime, but they'll never be able to hang me on it. Right. Um, you mm -hmm. can bend yourself like a pretzel and it's, it's artistic, but also like at some point you just want to say, this is what's going on. Here's I'm, I'm writing straight. So I can imagine that he's getting mm -hmm. out of jail free and also he's probably sitting on a pot of 
fucking money, Ben Smith. Ben, oh my God. <laughs> Pilots. Yeah, we got, yes. we got to talk about that. We got to hit him up, get some money, and go out it's, and, you know, do some do some things. He has so much money right now. Yeah. I mean, he was also yeah, the... Yeah. Uh, Can we do, still do blow during COVID, COVID time? Can I'm sure. Do blow? Like cocaine? Yeah. Yeah, sure. I'm not speaking yeah. from experience. I'm just saying, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't you guys go to strip clubs in Hollywood last time? Yeah. Wow. I don't know what you're talking you're about. Talking Why about? do you say things like that? My wife listens to this podcast yeah. and her mom. And by the way, I mean, strip malls. Strip malls have little clubs. And by the way, I can, strip I can malls say where the church is off. I can say the strip mall. With honesty and with not lying, we did not go to a strip club. There might have been some That's attempt true. when I was drunk to maybe yeah. like, let's <laughs> you know see what the local uh, culture is like. But uh, but you wouldn't remember. I if that would definitely. I would not remember that. Yeah. That would be a crime um, that the Manhattan DA would prosecute. Did you get him and see this column that, oh, no. that just appeared in your uh, messages from a friend? Um, uh, yeah, I didn't. I didn't. Out on January 3rd. Capital rioter admits false statement to FBI, but prosecutors haven't charged him with a felony. That is the headline. This publication is the intercept. But it's Notorious is the blue lives matter. The Justice Department <laughs> frequently charges <laughs> Muslims oh, with felonies no. for making false statements to federal agents. So we just have to charge more people, <laughs> not charge fewer what? people. <laughs> what? That's amazing. It is so bizarre. God, The Intercept loves prosecuting people. It loves when people go to jail. This is a new... But you know who doesn't? The new man. <laughs> Alvin Bragg doesn't... doesn't. Should, should we talk about this? I, I heard him give a speech. I thought it was Chesa Boudin out of San Francisco here. Yeah. Um, essentially, uh, a, a broad class of citizens will now not be subject to strenuous prosecution that may result in jail time because they don't want to do that sort of thing. They want to, they want to have a more humane approach to law enforcement. Um, Matt Welch, come to you. I know you're one of those bleeding heart libertarians, sycophants who hate law enforcement and want to let all the crimes out, um, let all the criminals into the street. How, how happy are you to know that people will be, you know, doing all sorts of terrible things and not having to go to without any fear of going to prison? Because that's the the new approach in New York. Well, is this going to work out well or bad? So when I saw the original <laughs> reporting or the original like tweet commentary about this, uh, it was like, "Oh my God, you have to murder a person to go to jail now." Uh, and that's and that turned, I mean, because that's kind of the language of the memo. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but it it's kind of like the Tenth Amendment um, in the sense that there's uh, the unenumerated crimes that are already covered by either city or state law or yes. federal law um, that you're still going to go to jail for that are much less than murder. So there was some language in there, like for stuff not covered already under fill in the blank law, this is how we're going to use our discretion. So it wasn't excluding uh, as many bad crimes as it seemed at first glance. Um, at the same time, like, you know, my sense of, of reform in New York or anywhere else uh, I like the idea of bail reform. There's a, there was a cash bail system. Matt Taibbi, one of his uh, recent uh, books, was really good on this, whose name I always forget. But that's sort of talking about the revolving door of of, uh, of uh, cops and courts funding themselves by uh, charging late fees for people who don't show up or can't show up or just can't get their stuff together. And people are just sort of 
you know, the initial underlying crime is stealing Moynihan's tequila bottle <laughs> and which, you know, is a grave crime, but maybe not capital offense. But then you, you don't show up to court on time and this happens and this happens. And, and before you know it, you're in jail uh, for six months and that just shouldn't be. And so there are reforms that you can do that address that. And what's frustrating uh, in a lot of these different cases in San Francisco, certainly in Philadelphia, where this has become a huge issue, huge split among the uh, Democratic mm-hmm. left um, in New York. I, I, I guarantee you this is going to be a big issue with Eric Adams, right, who's uh, arisen already as a kind of anti-progressive Democratic big city mayor who's going against big city progressivism and is a cop, um, a reformist cop, but a cop. Um, and who's, you know, came into office and saying, we're going to, we're going to do stop and frisk again, or a variation of that again. We're going to get cops back in schools saying things that are unpopular to the base. So he's not going to like this. He's going to tangle with those people. And it'll be really interesting to see and, and to learn in my case of like who actually holds the power in this situation. Certainly Adams campaigned and is underscored. And he underscored this the other day on Monday when his first act basically on a work day at, uh, as a mayor, was to be at an elementary school in the Bronx and saying these fucking schools are going to be open. And one of the reasons they're going to be open is that the kids in remote learning had terrible crime, uh, terrible problems with crime and violence in their neighborhoods uh, because everything's gone to hell. So like he's been underscoring this even in places that aren't like that. So I think that there's going to be political pushback against these reformist DAs, but they, and, and I just, it's a great foil for Adams. It's a great foil for Adams. Um, and I just lament really that the, there's sort of a wave and actually George Soros was part of this, right? There's a, a lot of interest in, uh, running and influencing local DA elections. And for the most part, or for a large part, I was very heartened by this. This is, you know, post, uh, Ferguson, Missouri activity. And a lot of these DAs in, you know, places like Bakersfield, California are like, they should be jailed probably for life. Those are some of the worst people. They have been, uh, acting with impunity forever and doing just terrible, terrible things to people. Um, and so I was happy to see some reformists come in and I'm just bummed, um, that it hasn't seemed like smart reform. And I don't know how much of it is that I'm just uh, consuming a sort of reactionary uh, pro police or pro police union media, right? The police union in New York City is terrible. They are, they are some of the worst people imaginable. They make me almost wish that Randy Weingarten was there instead of them. They're so bad. Um, <laughs> so they tend to twist things much beyond where they should be. But, you know, friends of this podcast and, and, uh, would be former guest Peter Moscos, um, writes about this stuff. Uh, and just because we recorded <laughs> an, an outstanding episode with him. It was so good. It was so good. We fucked up and oh. record. But, um, but, uh, <laughs> all we had is thanks. See you later. It's one hand. Yeah. Um, so like, I, I'm just bummed that, that, uh, the reformist wave of DAs seem to at, at first glance have fucked up. Um, uh, but I also reserve a little bit of hope, maybe that some of what we assume as their obvious fuck uppery might be exaggerated. But at some point, like, dude, if someone is organizing a looting brigade into <laughs> anywhere, they got to go to jail. There's You've two got th- yeah. to put them in jail. There's a couple of things that strike me about this. Um, the first one is that 
I mentioned James Q. Wilson before, who is kind oh, of one God. of the intellectual architects of broken window policing, which Giuliani instituted in the in the nineties, which was not the same thing as stop and frisk. Stop and frisk is part of that later is what Giuliani did. Um, bad policy, um, thankfully uh, gone. But here's the thing: that was actually based on academic research and some idea. Like we had a theory about it. This is nothing is underpinning this, right? This is like we have too many people in prison. We have to stop doing this, right? That is it. There's not some kind of overarching idea here. And what it is, is this is post George Floyd stuff, because when they're talking about specifically like gun crimes, right? If you Mm. rob somebody, if you rob a store, and I think the phrasing was like, there is no um, expectation or actual threat of bodily harm. You rob the store with a gun. There's no expectation or are you kidding me? They say like, I'm robbing you. There's no ammunition in this and I'm not going to kill you. So let me just take everything. Thus rendering the gun pointless. Unless that water, it's a water pistol and it's pink. This is well. here. Actually, here was what they, what they said was, um, this is uh, uh, the armed robbers use guns this is the New York post version of this, but it's yeah. actually true. Uh, or yeah. deadly yeah. weapons to stick up stores or in other businesses will be prosecuted only for petty larceny. A misdemeanor, provided mm. no victims were seriously injured. Jeez. Seriously injured. I, mean, I guess you could shoot them in the foot. Uh, and there was <laughs> no genuine risk of physical harm to anyone. Wait a second. Wait a second. You robbed a place with a gun that's yes. petty larceny? It's petty larceny. That's not. It is a misdemeanor. No. no. Yes. No, that's no. crazy. As, as Norm MacDonald said after the after uh, uh, OJ was, uh, was uh, found innocent, it's now official. Murder is legal in California. <laughs> Robbery is legal in New York City. And the idea here, so, right, so they say there's a very, there's like a political idea behind this because they say, oh, by the way, the things that, you know, people in the progressive coalition are worried about, you're still going to jail for sex crimes, right? So rape, mm. you're still going to mm-hmm. That's a very, very mm-hmm. important thing. And I assume the same thing would probably be true of hate crimes or something like that. But this is, this is what you do <laughs> when you say, I don't have a solution to a problem. So the, here, take a bunch of vitamins. Like, but you're not looking at the problem. I know you're going to die. It's, but I don't know what to do. So I'm just going to pretend that I know what to do. So to get people out of jail, do you reform something in a sort of smart way? Do you try to attack the problem at the root? Well, no. Why would you even think about that? That's, that's hard. That's complicated. You have to, you know, do studies and have academics and like, you know, experiment instead of having more people go to jail. And this is, you know, very specific. And some of this is like young black men, particularly when it's talking about, about uh, gun crimes because they're disproportionately affected is that, um, or represented rather than having that as a thing, let's just stop doing it. It doesn't mean the crimes actually stop. It just means we stop prosecuting them and we don't want people in this system, but we don't eliminate criminals. We don't eliminate criminal behavior. We don't eliminate, uh, particularly when they're like, you know, gangs of these people operating in like a hierarchy. These people. Uh, I mean, criminals. A hierarchy. Oh my God. Uh, It's like a boss and all this shit. It's like, I like the aspect of it where it's like, we're not going to prosecute drug crimes. Good. I think that's stupid. And we shouldn't do it. Sex crimes too. But but that's, that's, well, that's your opinion um, because the, the, those are you things want that the thrill be- those are things that discovery? benefit you. Um, but no, it's it's kind of crazy <laughs> that like there's no attempt in any way to actually deal with the problem. We're just going to say, well, we're, if we don't prosecute people, we're not actually going to have as many like particularly like young men, young black men in jail. I mean, that's the idea here. I would like to uh, throw a, uh, a a rose at the foot of uh, Jared Polis, uh, governor of Colorado. A uh, friend of the Independence uh, television program, terrible dresser, one of the worst. 
uh, a libertarian-leading Democrat, and he did a couple of things over the past. Very uh, popular, too, in his day. Uh, super popular. Um, he, uh, a month ago, uh, gave me an interview with Colorado Public Radio saying, like, dude, if you're not vaccinated at this point, it's kind of on you. So the rest of us li- live your life. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. that's actually, that was it that hard to do that? That makes sense. And the other thing that that he did sense. that almost none of the people who agitate for criminal justice reform do um, after campaigning on it or even after agitating for it from the outside, he just went ahead and pardoned a whole bunch of people, like more than a thousand people for drug crimes. Get yeah. the fuck out of jail. It's drug crimes. What are we doing here? Go. Yeah. Right. Everyone can do mm-hmm. that. Joe Biden could do that right now. Tens of thousands mm-hmm. of people. I actually gave, could do that I actually right gave now. Terry McAuliffe credit for that in, in Virginia in 2016 when he was, he had all these people had felonies that That's could right. Write, and he was like auto penning, you know, 10,000 of these. And I thought that was actually fantastic. But the, the, the idea behind this, the reason you don't have to have a kind of intellectual superstructure to say, this is what we're trying to achieve. These are the things that we're trying to do is that after the kind of George Floyd protests and after the seeps in the groundwater, that the only way we talk about this stuff outside of academia, now it's in everyday conversation, is that if you believe the criminal justice system is fundamentally white supremacist, right? If it's fundamentally unfair and or racist, right? And that's not to say that there aren't aspects of it that are bad or good or whatever. I'm just saying, if you believe that that's fundamentally what it is, then it makes perfect sense that you wouldn't send people through that system, right? Right. And so now Mm -hmm. people believe that and don't actually look that there are some nuances to this. And I am on the side of half the things that are felonies should not be felonies. The drug crimes shouldn't be crimes at all. You know, the three felonies of day, the Harvey Silverglade right. book, which is fantastic. It's like, that's where I live. That's where I am in my headspace about this stuff. But I also know that this kind of response, these kind of memos come from this idea when you have talked about nonstop with no pushback that the entire system, and this is de rigueur, this is the default setting of everybody in media and everybody in certain areas of the Democratic Party in New York City, especially. And you say, well, that's what the system is. It's a white supremacist system. Yeah. Why would you want to send people through that? New York, New York is a cop town and it has a cop mayor. Oh, and, that is right. And like, so shit is not there might be, there might be a, a lot of progressive activists who think that New York, that's never been the dominant uh even democratic hurt by points this? of view by this and that's what eric adams says all the time that, that's it's vitally vitally important not these fucking dickheads in park slope i mean we i, I had a, i had an exchange with a with a somewhat prominent journalist who uh works at the washington post and he had been commenting on the, the rise in, in gun violence um astonishingly which has been reported on pretty broadly um, and he was poo-pooing some of this reporting, uh, insisting that, you know, hey, look, it's not uh, uh, 1970-something. The crime has gone up year over year, but not that bad relative to where it's been. And the notion that someone shouldn't be concerned about a 30% increase in, say, like shootings or a 100% increase or in certain neighborhoods in Chicago. 200, 150, 90% increase in murders in your neighborhood is absolutely nuts. It is certainly it was worse in the past. that if you had, if you had like one murder, that's fine, but that's not what we're talking about when we flag those numbers. And it's certainly not the case that it's, it's just kind of completely trivial that there's a, a significant spike year over year sustained over a two year period now 
both through 2020 and 2021, that this is inconsequential for the people who are ostensibly supposed to be the focal point of all of these criminal justice reform efforts, that that black and brown people, low income people who live in neighborhoods that are plagued by violence, that they are are well served by these policies. It is the case that the people who live in these neighborhoods are advocating for more policing in many instances. They are asking for it. Um, so it's it's. It's kind of insane, the disconnect. Um, I, I did want to speak to what you were talking about a moment ago with the gun crime, because I'm remembering both uh, Plaxico Burrs, former wide receiver right. for the Giants, mm-hmm. who went to prison, and Lil Wayne, um, both of whom went to jail because of gun possession charges in New York City. I believe Plaxico Burrs' situation was, uh, if I remember correctly, had a gun in it, the band of his sweatpants, which fell out and then shot himself. <laughs> yes. Uh, and... and <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it does. When you have a gun in the waistband of your sweatpants at, was it a strip club? I don't know. Oh, Either way, um, both of those gentlemen did, um, I believe a year in jail because it was mandatory. You have a gun in New York City, you do a year in jail if it's, uh, uh unpermitted, et cetera. That's et cetera. The real you, it's you almost impossible to get. Well, yeah, but listen, mm-hmm. that's the real reason I never brought my gun to the city because I wasn't going to play games, right? Like even if you got it in the house, you can do prison time for that. Yeah. I think there's a, there's a kind of arbitrariness. There's an arbitrariness to a law like that. Well, I just know me and I'm probably going to get in some kind of trouble mm-hmm. where the cops got to come in at some point. Um, I'll tell you sorry about that after we're, we're finished recording. Um, no. oh dear. So I, I think that's arbitrary and that sort of, that sort of law ought to go, right? Like that should go. I think this prison time for ridiculous drug crimes, like that should go. But brandishing a firearm during the commission of a crime as an enhancer, giving you more prison time. I am an anarcho-capitalist. I don't like the state. I am generally opposed to it. I don't want many things to be criminalized. That doesn't mean that I'm against the very notion of law enforcement. Crime is bad. I believe in property rights. You don't just get to steal other people's shit. And if you do, there ought to be consequences for well, it. Well, threatening them and with they a should be consistent. Weapon. Yeah. And if you commit murder, you should be caught and prosecuted. I want that. I want that desperately because in the places where it is not happening, where clearance rates have skyrocketed alongside the murder rates, which is hugely important and consequential, it is de facto legal to murder people in Chicago. That is crazy. We're in January, right? So we have the numbers. Um, last year in Chicago, the total number of gunshot victims. Anybody have any guess of what that would be? It's like guessing. Is this just gun, gunshot, gunshot victims? victims and then really we get to homicide. 2,732, oh, man. All told, told last year, there were 4,300 gunshot victims. The number is a significant increase, increase from 2018 when there were 2,800 people were shot. That Jeez. is an increase of 1,500 people shot. Since 2018, the number of people who were uh, murdered last year, and this is not this is incomplete because they don't take highway patrol numbers, everything. So just because the CPD's total um, is the highest number of murders in Chicago in 25 years, and the number is 800. 800 Mm. people were killed in the city of Chicago. 800 people were killed in the city of Chicago 
last year. I thought you were going to say, I thought you said the city of Chirac. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I don't want to insult Iraq at this point. I mean, Iraq, well, Iraq Monahan, is more I mean, at least it's not 1970. I, well, did, that's did true. It's that gone down. To let everyone who lives there know <laughs> that it's not the 1970s. You can always find a place I mean, when it's gone down from. That's like saying to somebody say. like, you know, there were 40 people that were killed in Dresden last year. And like, you know, more people died in 1945. <laughs> uh, you know, 50,000 people died in one day in 1945. So it's better. I, I don't want I don't want hysteria in response to this. I do think it demands our attention, like very serious attention. We should be concerned. Yeah. It is a policy failure when there is a crime spike of this nature. It also suggests that there is something wrong with the culture, with the society more broadly. It should focus the mind. And instead, we're arguing about the potency of white supremacy, how it never sleeps, is everywhere. The problem at NPR is white yeah, that's, supremacy. That's what I think and and on the other side, it's we're going to ban CRT and save America. All of you people are, are absolutely crazy <laughs> and unmoored from reality and do not have a clear sense about what matters and what's consequential. Yeah. I think you know, that's and I agree with you on the gun thing, by the way, just to because I ranted a little bit about this. I just find it hilarious that these are the people, the most progressive people um, in in any kind of city governance uh, in America are all of a sudden like pretty lax on guns. <laughs> it's like you can't have one legally, but you can have one illegally. Like I'm fine. I don't want uh, people to go to jail for, you know, this additional like 10 years because they have a gun on them when they're pulled over or something. I don't, I, I don't buy that stuff either. And I think it mm-hmm. locks up the system and it's, there's a, a million ways right. of dealing with it. But, you know, it is also pretty interesting that these are the people now that mysteriously are, um, opposed to or saying like, this should not be a crime. I imagine if everybody who stormed, um, the Capitol had a gun on them, they would be like, please enhance all. The, all That's the, the one question that I wish I would have <laughs> asked Matt. Uh, but like, uh, the role of, of all the pretty heavy, first of all, DC has a bunch of heavy, uh, gun control laws in existence anyways, but to get anywhere within the perimeter, you had to be basically uh, disarmed. Um, yeah. And I, you know, it'd be curious if those rules hadn't been in place, what, what could have happened? A, a, th- a thing to think about um, mm. among our criminal justice reform friends who are devoting a lot of energy to nitpick the spike in murder rates and gun uh, victim rates Um it reminds me a little bit of a class of people that those people tend to not like, which are uh, pro-military interventionists, uh, you know, neocons as they used to be known, but just people who are kind of in favor of robust U.S. military engagements. One of the biggest problems with that latter group of people is that at some point they stopped taking as a serious uh, thing to think about or be concerned about or to respond to um, public opinion, public mm. opinion matters in a democracy dudes. Like mm. if you want some policy, you want some sweet ass policy in your direction. And I say this as someone who's almost always on the wrong side of public opinion. So um, I get that you're going to lose more often than you're going to win. Although stuff like pot's pretty popular, um, but like <laughs> you have to be aware of it and you yeah. can't just wave it away. If people feel like that, they're less safe. Um, oftentimes it's because they are. And you got to listen to them. It's similar to a lot of things that's happening along with uh, education right now. You see a lot of sputtering from people like Clara Jeffrey, the editor in chief of Mother Jones, um, like, you know, trying to uh, um, uh, talk down 
uh, uh, liberals from uh, saying that uh, from criticizing teachers unions for closing schools um, in the wake of the Virginia gubernatorial election, a bunch of other stuff. There's just obvious pent up pissed off people, including in Chicago, whose schools are closed this week because they're. Yeah. And Lori Lightfoot actually was sensible on this. I mean, she was, she's (laughs) apoplectic, but she doesn't have power. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's what you learn. But like, that stuff is popular and fundamental. I got a great joke about her that we're going to say after this podcast oh, is God. not taping. Ooh, good. I hope it's super racist. It's yeah. Not. Probably. That's fair. More, but um, uh, no, like, you yeah. have to keep it under consideration. It's not, it's not like some like random disreputable factor in the discussion of things. If people feel less safe, they're going to agitate for stuff that's going to make them feel more safe. And that might be against you. So instead of telling them that they're crazy for feeling that way, that you're wrong, that you're the subject of manipulation or whatever, like get with them, try to figure that out, talk in a way that they might be able to understand. And if they indeed have a, you know, they're noticing a serious trend that's going in the wrong direction, fucking admit it, dude, admit it because you're not going to reach them if you don't. They live there. You don't. This is another example, by the way, and we've talked about the the um, hilarious swings and misses that you get from the professional uh, media class about what Hispanic people are and what they believe because they are a monolith and they are Latinx, despite the fact that no one's ever heard of that. And when they do, they don't mm-hmm. like it. Um, and they're like, well, I don't understand. They must be all Cubans. And then they're like, oh, it's actually not Cubans that are like swinging towards Trump here. They're going to find the same thing. This is the danger of living in this world of seeing people by these monolithic ideas of identity. And you're going to see that in New York and in San Francisco and Larry Krasner and in, in Philadelphia is this idea that the people that are on Twitter and the academics that are coming into your office and saying, you know, I am the head of this uh, department at some shitty college and here's what the people want. And this is what is good for black America. This is what's good for Hispanic America. This is what, whatever they are not hearing anything that is even related to reality. And as you say about public opinion is that that thing that happened with Hispanics in the last couple of elections is going to happen when you see people migrating towards Eric Adams position on crime in New York city, if this causes a crime surge, and I can't imagine that it wouldn't. It's certainly not going to deter people when you say, remember that thing that you could have gone to jail for for a long time? You're probably not going to go to jail for it now. So do you want to, do you want to actually do that crime that you were thinking about? Cause there's a lot of crime in New York. Mm-hmm. You're like, yeah, I don't want to do it now. I just, I get it. Like now they're trying to help us out. <laughs> it's like, no, they're like, yeah, I want to fucking do the crime because you've done nothing to change justice, their man. situation. You have nothing <laughs> to change the culture and the ideas that are kind of permeating a culture of criminality. So therefore this is just going to boomerang on them. Like it has with Hispanics, whatever. This is the poison and the stupidity of thinking of people as groups, because you, you don't realize that you have to write a book. And I know Camille's mentioned this in the past and he pointed me to it a long time ago, the book black silent majority. It's like, well, yeah, obviously. And when you tell people that the, the crack disparity was pushed by, by the congressional black caucus, like, yeah, of course. They, they're like, this is fucking mm-hmm. our neighborhoods. We don't want this anymore. We want more policing. When there's not enough policing, it's like, why does the fucking white city hall not give a shit about us? When there's a lot of policing, it's like, this is an occupied territory and we're all going to jail. Is that the one mm-hmm. that people like more? is usually the more policing because the people who actually mm-hmm. go and engage in elections and actually are political, they're not crooks. 
They don't like fucking criminality. And it's ridiculous to think that they would be okay with this. Like, yeah, yeah, just let them. Too many people in our neighborhood are going to jail. You talk to people like, there's not enough cops here. Why the fuck is this happening? This, like, people don't like this. And there's a lot of data to suggest that this is true. And these people are just going off of kind of, you know, the word that I loathe because it's so soft and pointless these days. But they're going off of like kind of a woke instinct. Like this is, I think, mm-hmm. what should, and this is what we are doing now in the post-George Floyd ever, is just like, it's a defund the police in a way that is coming down from, from the DA. It's like, we're not defunding the police. Mm-hmm. If we can't do that, we're just going to get rid of the crimes. So if they arrest people, we'll make sure that they don't go to jail. It's like, what, what are you talking about? Is this, is yeah. there any theory behind this other than lowering numbers of people in jail, which I want to do, but I want to do it in a way that doesn't increase the number of crimes. Right. Well, lowering mm-hmm. the number of people in jail. Yeah. Stop arresting people for selling drinks, which the governor just did. Right. Well, give like, her credit when credit's yeah. due. Yeah. I did it while like mm-hmm. quaffing a yeah, yeah. champagne. Fucking wasted. <laughs> I, I watched recently and I, and I recommend uh, heavily uh, people watch it. The Rick Burns uh, PBS uh, documentary New York, New York on New York. It's good. Yeah. Uh, it's really great. And yeah. the, he's the Aussie Canseco of the Burns family. Totally. <laughs> and you just realize like, the role of New York politicians, governors, and especially mayors is just to be absolute mm-hmm. weird clowns yeah, uh, who, yeah, 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 who yeah, understand yeah. that everyone wants to get drunk. The book, um, this is not, I mean, I should have actually made a uh, Jason Jeremy Giambi c- comparison, which yeah, went better. That's true. Um, another Red Sox uh, affiliated one. But I, um, <laughs> I don't know. He's the, book, <laughs> the book Gotham is a very good book about yeah. New York. And I thought there's supposed to be a volume two. Mm-hmm. The, first, the first one came out 20 years ago. But maybe everybody died that's been involved. But that's a but you watch you watch that those documentaries or that series, and it's what what stands out to me is if I were to watch it again today, is like the absence of phrases like uh, white supremacy and whatnot, <laughs> like throughout them, because they're giving you this kind of portrait of what took place, and it, I'm sure it'd be a bit jarring to watch it. I, I keep having this experience where I'll read I'll read something that is totally sane and reasonable and wouldn't have stood out um, like X number of months ago, even yeah. say 23, 23 odd months ago, maybe, um, maybe a little less than that. Uh, and, and it just, it'd just be like weird, like this weird experience. In fact, th- since we've, we've said some negative things about the times today, not a whole bunch, but a few, um, I- I'll say that I read um, a guest essay um, that was published this week, uh, Yuval Levin's essay, Democrats voting rights are not the problem, um, is the title of it. And there was a, a bit in there that I thought was like particularly valuable. Each party is telling its supporters not to trust our elections unless its favored bills are passed while implicitly persuading its opponents that those bills are illegitimate and dangerous. The result amounts to an assault on public trust that's worse than an actual problem with American elections. Yep. I mean, that is penetrating and a hundred percent accurate and it's to- and totally sane. And there's a sense in which it's like it's insane to see it published in an American major newspaper. He's always really interesting. Generally they're always so ridiculous. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um but it's it's just it's great. That makes sense. Every day is January sixth. Does it make sense? Even if you mean it rhetorically. No, no I, I, I take it as a threat. 
It's, it's, no, it's a threat. To media. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It certainly is every day on NPR and CNN. There's no question about yeah, that. The Matt, yeah, the mass uh, January 6th test on uh, CNN. I did that again today, and, and it worked. And first, it I mean, it was January 6th. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was January 6th. Yeah, so. come in the yeah. But no, I mean, that is yeah. uh, to Camille. I'm messing with my mama's birthday. To, happy birthday, Camille's mom. Um, to, but to Camille's point about like, if you were watching the Rick Burns documentary, when I was just looking where I could find it online, cause I've, I haven't watched it in a couple of years. It's, great. it's really, really good. Amazon. Uh, Amazon has it. And also the if you PBS, have, you have to do a little, if, yeah, but if you, if you have canopy, which you should have wow. with your library card, it's fucking great. Um, it's, uh, it's on there too. But, uh, to, to, to Camille's point, yeah, there, there is a real frustration because on canopy, actually, this is a good example of this. There's a documentary section. And if you scroll through it, it's all like Chomsky stuff. It's like literally one ideology for hundreds of movies. I, I swear on my life, there's nothing that's even, I'm not talking I mean, about, dudes, I, it's just, I'm, not, I'm talking about something from the other side. I just want nuance. Like, here's a couple of, you mm-hmm. tell the people what happened when I went to the bookstore yesterday. Oh, I mean, that's every bookstore in New York City. It's like, <laughs> yeah, it's like, but Camille, you got a, 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 like a viral tweet out of me sending you a photo. Oh, but the problem. I mean, I do it all the time. I should say, people, like 50% of the things that I tweet is actually just bullshit that, like, Moynihan and Wealth say, but they From won't, scared like, tweet people. it or talk about it because <laughs> yeah. they're afraid that they'll be plastered as yeah. racist. You should just put I'll a little put thing. Stuff up. You know the blacks are nearly as smart as the whites. <laughs> yeah. I'll just put that oh, up. Camille, post And it's that. not me who said uh, that. Yeah. It's Moynihan yeah. who said it. You, and I'm like, uh, yeah. I mean, it must be true. You got to put um, hashtag SWT. Scared white tweet, and like that's like you just have to filter it for you. And I'm like, Can we go, you want to post that? And you're like, Yeah, I'll put it. Jefferson's video. That's by the way, it was from a listener who told me to watch it. So I watched the first episode and then I like I ripped the video and sent it to you guys. And then I was like, Camille, tweet that. Because I can't tweet that too. Oh wait, wait, is that right? Is that how I sent that to you? You ripped that? Yeah. A listener to I captured that. Moynihan rip, send a Camille. I ripped it from Camille gets all the fucking uh, Twitter traffic. It's it's um thank God in the curtain. Yeah. Um, behind the curtain. Yeah. The racist Wizard of Oz. <laughs> <laughs> I authored the post myself. Yeah, yeah. That was, that obviously, was... people were sharing that because of my 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 magnetism, ex- exuberant <laughs> prose, and not because of the comedy <laughs> genius yeah, of um, uh, or your ability to rip rip videos. Yeah, yeah. That was that was certainly I would not because that was on. I mean, that's copyright infringement. I would not. Yeah, do I didn't do that. I told somebody to do it. And they did it. And I never touched my. <laughs> <laughs> you directed the crime. But, you know, it's yes. funny that, like Donald Trump with the insurrection. Yeah, totally. I just, I just guided them there. Um, but march peace, march peacefully and patriotically <laughs> to, yeah, with your billy clubs, uh, to, to beat up the cops. <laughs> no, but when you talk about like the New York documentary and it's like, yeah, it is like a bit jarring when there's, but like Ken Burns, Rick Burns have always been very focused on like racial inequities in American life. You see this in the baseball episode mm-hmm. it's like all throughout the civil war and i imagine people would watch that now and complain but there is a certain irritation that i get with documentaries of what uh, where the theme is what didn't happen it's like you know mm-hmm. all of these things that could have happened with all of these great people and all of this you know talent that was not mined because of discrimination and oh, because right. of this and i was like you can't do a documentary that's interesting like you can't have a thing where you talk about like feral laguardia for you know, 40 minutes and it's like, you know, they're at, but at the same time in this poor neighborhood, whatever the ethnicity is, these people were being treated like shit and they could have been the mayor. It's like, that is relevant. And there's always that relevance in an episode about that's always very good. But when it suffuses everything, it is like, mm-hmm. you can't talk about the guy in the statue 
without trying to go through the garbage to see what fucking horrible thing that he said in 1780 and setting the goddamn thing on fire. Somebody tweeted this, like, let's go burn this statue down. And it was a picture of uh, uh, Marx's head at Highgate Cemetery where he's, where he's buried. And there was all this response of like, this is disgusting. And I'm like, said some pretty bad shit himself, like literally Jewish and wrote anti-Semitic stuff. Like really anti-Semitic stuff, and he's like the son of a rabbi. Uh, but and, and I would also say just because I'd watched the, and also uh, gave us the Soviet Union. The, uh, the <laughs> New York documentary is that um, you can't talk about New York without talking about race, and it's be- the whole thing because it wasn't foregrounded as the primary thing. Probably, if there is a primary thing, it is uh, commerce. Um, you know, New York was always a commercial enterprise, and as we even talked about with the uh, whatever the hell. The, the, the flushing remonstrance from last time, like whenever um, authorities wanted to say that either Jews or blacks or whoever yeah. uh, weren't in the right uh, category, um, but they had commercial upside, the people say like, look, you know, stop being a jerk, let them in and we'll figure sure. out the commercial stuff. So it's part, it's baked into New York and it's a wonderful part of the history, but because they didn't make that the text of the whole thing, by the time that you do get some race in there, and especially uh, with the Robert Moses episode, the famous power broker. Um, uh, and, and the riots, I imagine, in 1863. Yeah, Is that when the riots were? There are also uh, riots in other moments. But it, but really, for me, it was like uh, it was it was so brutal and horrible what happened. They were, in fact, in 1863. When the draft y- you got all of this like blunt force of Michael is Thumbs up in I'm, I'm happy that I got that on over here. Um, uh, what happens when there's a blunt, that was some racist shit right there. Blunt force government <laughs> uh, uh, ability to just rip up neighborhoods. Um, and it was funneled through people who agglomerated their power and had their own kind of ideas about where people should live. And you realize some of the most racist shit that happened in the history of New York happened not in 1657 or 1725 although i'm sure there's tons of fucking racist shit that happened there but it happened in the 1950s and that's weird to think about it's really weird and it makes you reflect on power and it's precisely because they didn't make that the primary focus of the series that by the time that that hits you are freaked out like it becomes more powerful on that message than it would have been if that would have been the only message. Does it ever freak you out? Not freak you out, but like surprise you when you see an old film, an old newsreel, uh, you know, an old book or a newspaper article magazine that has photography in it, in which you see, you know, like white people, Asian people, black people, like Mm. living in a normal situation. Because there is a, <laughs> honestly, there's a, there's a, when you get like, to a certain, like being nice to each other yeah, like and, in a movie and, and it's not, really not yeah, it's not a Benetton ad. And, it's just like a normal, yeah. yeah and it's no not a joke about white supremacy baked in. Yeah. Or, or like there's, there's just like it, the, the, the character is treated as a character. The person is treated as a person. Yeah. And like the person who owns the business is like, you know, like a black business owner or like, you know, a Asian business owner or whatever. And it's not like, it's not the focus of, I mean, I see this all the time. When I'm like, oh, that's just a totally normal interaction because you get, there's a certain point at which you think that every interaction before a certain year in America was one of just like, you know, bileless racism and there was no other types of interactions. I mean, it was absolutely a thousand times worse than it was today and it's in no way to diminish it. But it's, I'm just, I'm just saying that it's always a bit jarring to see like a normal interaction when you say like, oh, there were actually normal people at the time who were not 
overwhelmed by racism. I yeah, mean, you assume so, that certain on some level, were, on some level, I you know, it's probably Camille infecting my brain, uh, but like uh, I I yeah. I wonder about you know the assumption that it was always that you know today is always better in the you know there's a, a level of consciousness of today mm-hmm. that I think is not healthy just like in normal interpersonal relations i still think that most people are normal and it's fine um but like the degree uh especially in the kind of places that we tend to live of people like just being hyper conscious and then there's also you know legacy structures of weirdness some of them recentish um that kind of put people in those positions compared to like just fucking go to atlanta no one gives a shit well that's what i told you about my daughter today is that when you tell somebody over the developmental period of their life when she's 10 years old now that this stuff doesn't matter. Uh, you know, that there's like literally nothing preventing you from being friends with anybody, you know, going to the same church as anybody, which she does with, you know, that is hilarious, uh, with both you and she goes to a black church too. And, 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 uh, best oh. she's been to, I'll tell you about that later. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. She's with, double with churching. Her, now? Oh, this was an earlier, okay. uh, uh, it was before she got into your fucking clutches and you, like decided to make her. I have made Moynihan's daughter a Catholic. It's so bizarre. I'm so I'm gonna, happy I'm about this. But when she said, what is it? What is a black church, Moynihan? What is a black oh, church? It's a church. And one day I'm gonna fix y'all. That's one day. One day I'm gonna fix. Yeah, yeah, One day I'm gonna fix. Yeah, it's the place where you go in and you're like, oh my god, there's literally no white people in here. <laughs> that is what we call a black church, and that's what they call a black church. Oh. Um, so no, like when you go to these, it's fine. It's it's fine. He he knows what he knows. I'm right. Um, but when you have these conversations with somebody and you do it in this way, that's like, no, no, this is the way it is. And this is the way that we think about this stuff. Um, because you do notice as a, a ch- children notice very young, very, very strong cultural differences, right? You go to neighborhoods where all of a sudden, you know, your little blonde kid, nothing, nobody looks like them. Language is slightly different. The, the, you know, slang is different, et cetera. And they're, they're like, wait, what? And so when you, kind of instill upon them. They're like, this, this is just, you know, normal. Germans are the same way. If you go, like it's Europe, you go across and everyone's fucking weird and different. And then they ask you like my daughter did today, like, what is the deal with this stuff? Why is everyone talking about this in the opposite way that you talked about it? Basically, like, why is everyone talking about this all the time? I swear to God, this was, I mean, I sent you, I cannot say that Mm -hmm. she would get some. Yeah. Don't say it. Don't say it. Don't say it. Um, No, not what she said. (laughs) I sent you something. um, Yeah. Yeah. I know. But, but she, that was apropos of nothing that was not yeah. precipitated by any conversation. We were walking in like on like uh Bedford Nostrand area and she started mm-hmm. talking about it. And she's like, it's so weird. Like this is this conversation that's happening all the time, but I don't get why this is true, but that's not true. And why this is always a conversation. Right. And I'm like, well, can I, can I that's tra- not what you taught me. And I'm like, well, not really. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, this is, this is the thing. This is why I think the distinction is very important, Moynihan, with respect to, you know, the casual use of black church. I'm not chastising you too much, except, you know, I'll, I'll rip into you later. It's called like, the black church. What, what, <laughs> was it, was it, is it, is it a charismatic church? Yeah. Is it a Protestant church? It, is it an Adventist it's some church? Like my, I, my college roommates, my college roommates and I were all stuff. in a, um, we were all in an evangelical, uh, Christian fraternity. We chartered the chapter of this fraternity on our campus. Like fun. And I grew up Seventh day Adventist, as most of the listeners know. Um, Seventh day Adventist churches have a particularly bookish culture. Um, and 
have an aversion in general to a lot of the very like emotional, expressive kind of religious experiences. It was years before people were kind of allowed to play drums in the church. And my grandmother, who just passed away um, uh, uh, a little while ago, um, was always put off by people playing percussive instruments in church. It was, it was just too much for her. She, she got offended and upset. And I, I sung in church pretty regularly, um, as a youth and I would sing in a way that was probably more typical of a lot more like expressive <laughs> churches. And even that was a good, so it's, but this is the, but this is the thing. When one says a black church, yeah. I suspect that one is presuming a bunch of attributes exist. Oh yeah, hundred percent. But the specific experience that one has in a particular church, even if they are you know, generally kind of ethnically uniform or uniform in terms of the phenotypic traits of the people there, it matters like what the details are. Well, and it is the case in, in the that we can make certain generalizations about these things, but the imprecision is material and consequential. Yeah. And the the race craft, this is the thing about it. The answer for Livia isn't so much that we're supposed to treat people equally and we're supposed to regard them on the basis of the content of their character, regardless of what race they are. It's, well, people are ridiculous. They're paying attention to the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. It's not about race at all. People are different. We're all different. Those people are captured by a mind virus. Yeah, you they can't explain this for It's hard to it, do. But, but I think you. But I think you can. I think there are. I yeah. think there are ways to do it. And I. I will fix in the culture, in a way, there's a couple things about this. In the culture, way, it's a losing battle in the sense that when I am the sole voice that says that talks about the kind of racecraft of it all and does it in a way that it's mm-hmm. understand is that, and then you fall asleep and bring her to school in the morning. And then she's <laughs> sent out into this world in which all of that is immediately destroyed by hundreds of conversations in every aspect of life about this. And then they come <laughs> home and you're like, okay, let's try this again. It's a, it's a tough uh, a battle to fight, but it's fine on the, on the church is concerned. There's a presumption when I say that, that you know where I am, particularly where mm-hmm. I am like geographically. And like, it's like, if you said, uh, like an Italian Catholic, Irish Catholic church, one in Italy, one in Dublin, one in Boston, mm-hmm. like where you are and you use that indicator, people know what you mean, yeah. right? And it's oh, for like, sure. Like, but even that is more precise than like the white and black church. Oh, but which I, I, think I, is, I know that you know where I am, people, like yeah. just geographically yeah, yeah. right where I am. I, Again, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm doing this for the benefit of the listeners, not because I actually think you need to be chastised. Yeah. I think, um, but I, I, I do think it's, it's interesting. Well, I prevented her from going to church because I'm racist. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> but, I, but I will Yo. say, I, I had a conversation with, with a mutual friend of ours today who was telling me about, um, their nephew who goes to a very, I think it was his, his nephew who goes to a very prestigious, um, uh, uh, high school in New York, I believe pays a huge salary for it. And he says, you know, that his nephew and a lot of his friends are so, have been so steeped in all this DEI stuff mm-hmm. um, that the response to it was for them all to become Republicans. Yep. Yep. <laughs> like, That's why I need to ask these questions. Cause she's like, by this stuff. Yeah. She thinks and annoying. Honestly, like the, the, the people who are insisting that, Oh my God, 
they're propagandizing to these students about yeah. white supremacy. They're telling them that all of them are bad. It is definitely the case that more people than two years ago believe Ibram Kendi's insane, ridiculous, ahistorical, tautological foolishness. Um, but it's also the case that many people are alive to just how obscene it is, even if they're not able to put it into words and they're turned off by it and they're either becoming slightly more sane mm. or a bit reactionary. Um, and the possibility that there will be a, a kind of surge of interest in mm. uh, an alternative political philosophy because of this, I think is very, very good. I agree. Um, and uh, I think a lot of the pessimism and a lot of the, the extreme um, sort of ris- ridiculousness about like a race, race, soul, uh, racially motivated civil war or something like that is just, it's, it's ridiculous. I don't know that being apocalyptic like that is generally advisable. And I say that to friends of mine who are, you know, anti-woke. And I say that to friends of mine who are woke and worried that, you know, January 6th was a racial reckoning of its own. And they were, they, this was a manifestation of white supremacy and they wanted to kill all the black people and take over America. It, all of this, this ridiculous apocalyptic talk is, I think, generally nonsensical and deeply unhelpful. I think the DEI so, stuff is actually an incredible filtration device for children. It separates the stupid in the NQ <laughs> from the challenging. I mean, people who just swallow the yes. stuff, they're going to be, yeah. they're going to swallow anything. And it's just like, they're in the curious people that are going to be like the teacher told me this and therefore I believe it but it really does pull out like I've been super proud of Livia just for asking these like really pretty astute questions of like not it's not because like oh I'm bragging and she's blowing me away it's like no I'm just impressed that she's questioning it at all and saying yeah this doesn't sound right to me there's something that feels a bit off about it so what is it papa like what do you think that this is and it's like wow this is so conspicuous and so like over the top and just it is kind of infected every aspect of life inside of a school these types of schools where it's like you know i get the emails there's a um you know a performance and this is going to be a part of it. There's a guest speaker. This is going to be a part of it. There's summer reading. This is going to be a part of it. Everything is like, why is this one subject being uh, coming up so frequently and given to us with such ferocity? It's not as if, hey, here's a really interesting thing. You know, other, this is actually true of other aspects of schooling. It's like, there's this person and then there's that person. Now, what does this person think? And what does that person think? And why do they think it? And that sort of thing. This is the one thing that is completely immune to that kind of inquiry and kids notice it they do notice they it like notice, what's it's notice. so obvious like they more of it at my please <laughs> my 13 year old who's busy trying to infect uh michael's 10 year old um with all kinds of bad ideas <laughs> herself is is if she you know she's half woke or she'll use woke as a weapon against her parents well, saying not you're non-binary actually gets you things like non-binary. You can like get you can like maybe get off school early or something. Uh, wait, is 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 easy no, non-binary shit like that? Is like they will. Well, here's, uh, here's the thing: without like free gifts, though. without throwing her under the, under the bus with her teachers, because I'm confident her teachers don't listen to the free podcast. Although some might subscribe some, some to the do. Patreon, which all of you Ooh, do. That's where we're going to talk about you. Uh, <laughs> you lie. But she's already aware of that they want to, like, 
hear the story about manifest destiny just so with like the shading in this direction. She's, you know, you already figure out how like they always talk about certain subjects in a certain way. And so Mm -hmm. here's what they want. Mm -hmm. And so you perform a little bit less than perfectly honestly because you're trying to get a grade. Um, And so if a smart 13 year old, a 12 year old, 11 year old is already like, okay, I could see there's a little structure BS here that I have to like pay, yeah. uh, you know, uh, pay some kind of, uh, uh, feasons to then, uh, then what does that teach them ultimately? It teaches yes. them that people are lying. Yep. <laughs> uh, and that maybe they shouldn't uh, pay a lot of attention to that. And who knows how that filters out later, but like, uh, it's not, there's it's, proof of this. There's proof that this works. There's proof that the, the, uh, that it is a good thing. That a lot of this stuff is pushed on on kids. I truly believe it. I think it's fine because if your kid is curious, it'll it'll be and and you're there too to actually say, well, I don't know. What about this? The, where did the new left historians come from? Where did the Kolkos come from? Where did the you know original mm-hmm. like David Horowitz when he wrote Free World Colossus? Like all of these new left historians came because because the shading on history was one of glory, and now the shading of history is one of misery. And when it's misery shading, the reaction is going to be in the other direction. The glory shading gave us new left historians. And I think the misery shading yeah. is going to give us, give us people who push back in a different direction. I mean, the thing that made me political in the way that I am, I didn't have political parents. I grew up in Massachusetts. I did not grow up in a place where there were many Republicans. You know, I gl- grew up next door to fucking Doris Kearns Goodwin, for Christ's sake. These and her son is a dear friend of mine. And that was the kind of place. But I went to college. And when I went to college, I was like, Man, you guys are full of shit. It is so obvious that like you you think you're tricking me. Like I try to trick people in my life. I try to trick like you know I'd be young and like met a girl like here's one of my trying to trick girls all the time. The academic version of tricking girls is like oh you just gave me a bunch of incoherent nonsense sort of like eight paragraphs of postmodern gobbledygook and at the end of it there is this nugget of bullshit. And you think that you tricked me with all the stuff that sounded smart. No, you revealed to me that you are a fucking charlatan. And that is what universities is good for. It's like, I don't want like my daughter to go to fucking Liberty. I don't want my daughter to go to what's the one in Michigan, um, uh, 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 Hillsdale or something like that. Like I want her to have access to all those books. And I think that professors do that. But I think that when you're in that kind of, you know, cauldron of, of, bad ideas and stupidity and stuff. The interesting ones, the smart ones, the curious ones will get out of it and they will find the counterexamples because they like pissing off the teacher. They like challenging them. Uh, so it doesn't exist in a vacuum that kids just go in there like automatons and come out, you know, programmed robots. That's why there's resistance in Soviet occupied countries during the cold war. That's what they got one fucking thing. And you got Havel, you got one fucking thing and you got Sakharov. That's where that stuff came from. It's because people don't, a lot of people do lie, lie down, but they're always going to lie down. It doesn't matter which direction it is. That's There's just the nature of people. always a moment when they realize it's bullshit. Yes. And that like It's a matter of what of they people. do about it because everybody in the, so like there were so many people that if you looked at those kind of underground studies of this stuff in occupied countries, they knew it was bullshit, but they weren't brave enough to say anything. And that's normal. Uh, the ones that were brave are like, that's not just, those are not the only ones that it broke through to that the truth and the reality of the situation broke through to a lot of people, but most people didn't say anything because there's too much of a risk. But, you know, that's why, you know, the be brave, Paul bullshit. It's like, we've a lot of like, what is, what do we get in this podcast? We get so many fucking emails from people who are like, Oh, thank God. You know, we mm-hmm. get so many people from institutions 
that are corrupt in our minds that we talk about being corrupt that email us like mm-hmm. I'm in that institution. You guys are totally right. Thank you for doing this, but I can't say anything because it's my job and my health insurance and you know salary for my kids' education, etc. And that means this shit is not working. This shit doesn't work. If you sit at home reading like fucking Twitter and like just Ben Shapiro's podcast or whatever it might be, no insult to that. Mm-hmm. Just that if that's mm-hmm. all you're hearing, you just think that everyone is walking zombie like through these institutions because the long march through the institutions, as the Maoist said, took place. And now everybody's transfixed by the ideas because they have no other options. That's not true. We ain't zombies, dudes. No, we're not. We're not. Yeah. We're not zombies. I mean, how- how many how many stories have we seen this week and in the last couple of weeks actually about the the plummeting news readership yeah. um about Joy Reid um losing her show which was had plummeting ratings that's just me taking a dig at her it's not particularly representative <laughs> of anything and it could plummet all on its own because what was interesting about 50% that 50% drop right about that chart that just you sent terrible. uh which uh was a precipitous drop from January of 2021 like month by month by month but her place in the cable news rankings was more or less the same, um, you know, between 16 and 21. I don't know what the, what they were, if it was prime time or whatever. Um, but like, uh, everyone is jumping off. And that's kind of interesting pursuant to our, our, our previous guest and yeah. the conversation is like, they've been trying to like pump up that great Trump energy, you know, in some direction. Yeah. Um, whether it's about COVID so we can hate those people because, those people are DeSantis and he's doing the bad thing or whatever. Uh, or if it's about January 6th, January 6th, January 6th, um, they try to pump up that feeling. Um, and that's not where people are. That's, that's the thing. That's why this, all this talk about civil war just strikes me as, as a lot of, of superly overly online people, uh, who are overly politicized on the right and left. Yeah. On the right and left. Mm -hmm, And even in, in the, like people like us too, you know, we're overly, uh, politicized on some level, although we don't have a team. Um, but like, uh, yeah, you lose yeah. perspective. Too. No, we have a team. Most people. It's a different, it's a different, it's a different team. team. It's a different team. team. But yeah, like, it's a different team. It's a better, it's the best it's team. It's a fucking good team. It's the right it's team. It's a good team. Yeah. I wanted to tell you before I forget, uh, with the alcohol, although it's Moynihan drinking tequila tonight, but, uh, um, that, uh, pursuant to the race thing, because I think that one of the most effective things that you ever imparted to me, Camille, which I imparted to my eldest daughter, um, uh, is that the word black uh, doesn't describe a person. It describes skin color um, or brown or dark mm-hmm. brown or whatever. Um, and, mm-hmm. and that is a much better way of describing if you, if you must and are interested in that. Um, that actually kind of opens people up to all kinds of different things. This came up yesterday in my house um, because mm-hmm. my six-year-old Coco, who you all know and love because she did a pretty good greeting, mm-hmm. better greetings than me or one mm-hmm. I could do. Um, uh, came down and saw a bumper sticker and I forget, and I'm sorry, it's probably Ben price, but it was a listener at some point made the uh, Camille 2020 bumper sticker. And it has the tagline, mm-hmm. uh, don't worry. He's not really uh, black. Yeah. <laughs> Which I have up on my desk. Right? I, fr- I, I do love the phrasing. Don't worry. I know you're so worrying weird. about this. But. So my six year old is like, daddy, why does it say that? And I'm like, Oh dear God, how long is this going to take? And it took about, seven to, to nine minutes because I had to like, yeah. this is Camille's point of view. Um, this is a joke. Uh, this is why Kennedy and I were trying to make the Camille 2020 thing happen. 
I, I, I brought up the person that we were trying to elbow out of the Libertarian Party race, which is back history that most people don't understand and realize. That was also part of it. Um, lots of fun bits uh, of that. And also, like, don't worry, he's not really black, uh, what that is a play on. But ultimately, it came down to that notion of, uh, and it's the Camille notion, and I think it's the right one, of saying that black isn't a sort of destination description, just as like Moynihan and I don't wake up in the morning thinking of ourselves as white, even though Moynihan should because he's fucking Boston. I woke up this morning. <laughs> I am a white man and I have had enough of this. I always love, like I, I, I mentioned on, uh, on Twitter yeah. about a week ago, like uh, Gen X's version of the World War II documentaries is just Lakers Celtics eighties. Oh yeah. (laughs) We can watch that. We can never not watch that. Like it is so great. And then at at some point in all of these, there's always a slow motion of like Lurch, Kevin McHale and like Larry. There should should be a slow motion of Robert Parrish getting arrested for getting a package of weed sent to his house by UPS. I forgot about that. (laughs) Uh, And like Bill Walton did, there's like, there's like uber whiteness moment always in a, in a Celtics thing. Um, and like, and, and that sort of like poisoned or, or energized that relation back in the day. But like, uh, that is the correct notion. And like kids can actually get that, right? Like it's not, I don't think the natural state of kids to say there's this category called black that has all of these, uh, uh, associations with it. Like people who are black do X. Um, I don't think that they're necessarily geared for that. They're, they're actually geared for, Everybody in my classroom or in the space that I'm at are like friends and like they don't, you know, they, they notice physical differences. They notice linguistic differences and, and, and whatever, but like they don't necessarily bring a bunch of baggage into the descriptions of people. And I think find that curious. And if you can, cause they're too young to have weaponized it. They're too young to weaponize it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? if, if they'll, they, they would get there if they grew up when, when me and Moynihan did, they would weaponize it, but that's different. And I, I, yeah, I think, I think that's the, that's the shortcut to the Camille, like, uh, Valhalla that we'll get to someday. Well, used Valhalla. Yeah. It's a very Aryan. I love it. I love idea. it. I love it. Um, uh, anything before we close out? Uh, no, um, any, any- we got, we got some, um, uh, Patreon stuff we're recording coming up. I just booked a really good uh, author interview for that series um, that I'll be recording in the 20 something of uh, January. And it's going to be a really good one. I'm very excited about it. So mm-hmm. that will be Patreon only. So cough up the dollars uh, so we can live and breathe and eat. And I can send my daughter to an even woker school because <laughs> I just made the case that this is the best thing for her education. Um, Counter programmer. So, all right, Man, you should you should send her you should send her to um uh, one of the higher ground schools for the uh, for the older kids. You know, they got have a high school program that is like lights out, and they actually have a school in in New York. You should look into it. Ah, cool. We'll, we'll talk about it. I know I know some people over there. Maybe is that, is that like um school? Yeah, so. They all wear like like you know sweatpants, black sweatpants, and like black Nikes. Go to school. Pur- purple suits and Nikes. Actually, <laughs> they're waiting for Hale Bob to come back. <laughs> um, um, uh, all right. All right. Okay. All right. Well, uh, All right. Thank you. Um, I think I think we should probably go. You know, at some point, I have to tell the story on the podcast about what? the dude at the Home Depot. Like you I did just, tell the Home Depot story. You did. No, I told it to you guys. I didn't tell on the podcast. Yeah, you did. You did. Yeah, you did. I did. You did. You yeah. Patreon. You just gave. You just gave. Oh, I told him on the Patreon. Patreon. Yeah, you got to sign uh, up. It'll get to yeah, know. Go sign up. Go sign up. It's a good story. Yeah. I mean, it obviously it stuck with me. Yeah. 
He, that man made an impression on me. You were in the toilet. I mean, he wanted, yeah, he uh, wanted to do my speaking, drywall. Speak, yeah, he wanted to. Is that what they call it these days? And when, I, and when I declined, and when wow. I declined, and when I declined, he he said, "Well, there's something else I can do." Yes. For you. yes. <laughs> we were just talking about Doctor King. You are not Doctor King. You are Bayard Rustin, my friend. Amen. And the walls came tumbling down. There. They did. Um, it's not just by Russian. Yeah, some other interesting friends. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, all right, good. I think we've I think we've done enough here. Okay, we've done some good work. Okay, let's just say bye. 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 We, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse, the fifth column.